Nation Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the Combination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Groceries through Instacart, delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Check out The Projection Booth, Wednesdays on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Here, in a world where the sun burns cold, and the wind blows colder, a visitor has come, but not. By herself. It started. Come on! The suspense is back. We have no weapons of any kind. The fear is back. And most of all, the bitch is back. Alien 3. This is Rumor Control. You are now in the projection booth, and I am your host, Mike White. We are joined by Mr. Rob St. Mary. Double Y Ask Why. Also with us this week is the prisoner of Sublock 1138, Mr. Brad Jones. Hey, I'm a prisoner. This week we are talking about the 1992 film... Alien 3, the third in the Alien franchise, thus the name, and the feature film debut of David Fincher. Alien 3 stars Sigourney Weaver as Ellen Ripley, Charles Dutton as Dylan, and Charles Dance as Clements. The film is set on the prison colony planet of Fiorina, where the double-Y chromosome prisoners lead something of a monk-like existence with shaved heads and a penchant for spouting spiritual claptrap. Brad, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Alien 3, and what did you think? The first time I saw Alien 3 was when I saw it in the theater. Um, I was 10. No, no, I was 11. I was 11 years old, and it was the first Alien movie I saw. <laughs> How'd that work out for you? <laughs> well, I had nothing to compare it to, so there was that. I knew what the series... I, I didn't go into it not knowing anything about the the other movies or, or anything like that. It was. It really was a case of um, it's Alien Three. My mom really, really wanted to see it. She had no problem with me seeing it. Um, I just really simply hadn't seen the other two movies at the time, but I knew of them. I, I knew like the, the chest bursting scene and aliens and all of that. Um, I I just hadn't hadn't watched the other two, so I went I I went to go see the third one with her. And 
being big into slasher movies at the time, I remember thinking it was fine. Like, I, I don't remember sitting there as an 11 year old kid with any of the with really any of the criticisms of the movie that I necessarily have now. I just remember being as a kid, like, oh, it's to go to they're chasing an alien through some dark hallways and there's some blood and some gore going on. Right on. 11-year-old kid thinks this is entertaining. And then it was not long after that I saw the other two movies, and which were wildly better than Alien 3. <laughs> when I rewatched it for the show today, honestly... That was re rewatching it in, in order to do the, the podcast might be the first time I've seen it all the way through since I was probably a teenager, like early teens, maybe. So, Rob, when was the first time you saw Alien 3? Uh, the show. What'd you think? You know, having not seen Alien 2, cue the scary music. It wasn't bad for what it is. I watched the um, the theatrical cut, and I thought, eh, it's perfectly serviceable. Um, not having too much of an emotional tie to the second film, going into the third film, it's kind of interesting. I think some of the stuff looks dated, but then again, it was made uh, 23 years ago, so anything made 23 years ago probably looks dated. Um, but overall, it's not too bad. Um, is it something I'm probably going to watch again? Maybe not in a while. Now, when you say you saw the theatrical cut, how, how does your movie start? Let's see. Uh, text of crash on screen. And then these guys open an escape pod and then it's Ripley, the 12 year old girl and the, the leftover remains of the Lance friend, the Lance Henriksen character being taken into this, uh, like medical place. And so th when there there is an alien that appears, does it come out of a dog or an ox? Um, I think it comes out of a dog. Okay, yes, you definitely saw the theatrical version. Same, yeah. That was the same that I watched, too. I have seen, I don't know how many countless cuts of this film now, between the fan edits that are now widely available through the uh, work print that was available on the bootleg circuit years ago, and through the what they call the assembly cut that is available on the Alien Quadrilogy. And then I think there's even a different cut that is on the Blu-ray box set. And I saw the original back in 1992. Unlike you, Brad, I had seen, I think, one and two going into this. Definitely I had seen two. And I had seen two a lot. I actually saw two... Kind of like you, I saw that at the theater with my mom back in 1986 when that thing came out. Alien 3, oh man, was I disappointed. <laughs> I was severely disappointed. And But I was so irked by this that Alien 3 has kind of become an obsession for me over the years. Because I couldn't figure out how this movie got to be so bad. And I think what it was... What really prompted me to start researching this was seeing other films by David Fincher, seeing a film like Fight Club and saying, oh my God, this is awesome. This is a, this is a tremendous film. How did this guy make that piece of shit Alien 3 movie? Only to start doing research and find out, oh, he kind of got fucked in the ass while he was making this movie, not realizing just 
the extent of the skullduggery and the shenanigans that were going on with the producers and the studio and all of this kind of stuff. And yeah, so there's a whole raft of behind the scenes things that we'll be talking about as we go through this episode, but let's talk about the movie and I guess let's focus on this theatrical cut because that's what people saw in 1992 and rob i have to say i'm so fucking shocked that you've never seen aliens that is just amazing how have you avoided over the years i have no idea i remember when it came out in 1986 i think it was what uh eight years old and i remember the advertising for it and i remember some kids who were interested in seeing it but to be honest i was even late getting to the first alien film so i didn't see that until years later on home video so it's uh, it just happens to be kind of the way things worked out. And for some reason, I just never saw the second one. Yeah. So um, it's either that or I did see it at some point. And I just don't remember it. So like I said, the, the jump from going from the first film to the third film was like, OK, you know, it, it works. Oh, yeah. It's not that crazy of a jump. I mean, I, I think a lot of the problems that I read online from people is that it's such a jump from the second to the third one in terms of a lot of stuff that's in there that people were upset that they either got rid of or they changed or whatever. Well, I like the way that you describe who else is in that escape pod with her, the little girl and the robot. I mean, I don't even think that you mentioned Hicks at all. And those characters became so meaningful to anybody who saw the second alien film that their death within the opening credits of the third alien film is just one of the biggest slaps in the face that you possibly can get. It's like trying to save the princess through the entire first film only to have the princess killed by an errant dragon within the first two minutes. And then that's it. And you, and you don't see the death. There's no emotion attached to it except for a little bit afterwards. And that's it. You know, I mean, Ripley, like, yeah, she's affected a little bit, but maybe half hour in you can't even tell that newt or hicks was even around and it's just like wow that that's it huh that's all you're gonna do so i can see where you're coming from as far as one to three and then brad you have in this background of not seeing one or two when you went back and you watched one and two what was kind of your reappraisal of three then when I saw the third one in the theater, I mean, I knew the context of who Hicks and Newt were because I knew I, I had known enough about the second one from advertising or even my mom telling me what, what some stuff that happened before we had gone to go see part three. So then in going back and watching it, I'm of kind of a few different minds about it, one of which is less being pissed off that they're that they were killed, that they were killed off. And more kind of like, well, that's kind of ballsy. <laughs> like, I, I'm kind of of that mind of it a little bit. Like, wow, to like just kill them off rather gruesomely. And then this pretty dark kind of autopsy sequence, which is even more graphic in the other cut of the movie. That's pretty dark and ballsy and not entirely predictable that that would happen like i'm kind of of a mind about that i'm like who you don't see that very much uh in in terms of sequels and with some beloved characters like that then on the other hand like you just mentioned with this all being shown within the opening credits with opening credits that were incredibly shoddy <laughs> like this opening credit sequence where it keeps it uh it's one of those opening credits sequences where it screams of 
they're inserting about 20 minutes worth of like deleted sequences into two minutes of opening credits and then just randomly cutting to the stars and the name on the, and like starring Sigourney Weaver and stuff like that, then cutting back to the ship, then cutting back to the credits, back to the ship. Like, oh, oh my God, just freaking pick somewhere, please. I'm getting I am getting whiplash watching these credits. And but then it's exactly what you it, I, I'm in total agreement with what you said, where if if you're going to do this, if you're going to kill off Hicks and you're going to kill off Newt, these two great characters and you really got to drive home some kind of emotional impact that it has. And in that autopsy scene, there's emotion there from Ripley when that, when that's happening, which why wouldn't there be? She's looking at the kid's dead body. You know, there's emotion in that scene and that's it. And that's totally it. Like if you're going to kill them off, do something really hardcore with that, but they don't. They're just like, yeah, they're dead. Ripley is sad. And the rest of it is just Ripley dealing with the prison planet. I mean, you can do a psycho. You can have your... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Marion Crane there for the first 20 minutes and then kill her off. You know, imagine yeah. the impact of that. Oh yeah, Newton Hicks—they're they're on this prison planet or wherever you want to set this thing, and man, within the first twenty minutes they die, and now it's up to Ripley to save the day again. That would just tear the heart out of you, man. It's like Maniac Rather than two. there's that whole thing, you know, of uh, Alfred Hitchcock, like you know, you will not be admitted after the first twenty minutes of the film, or you won't be admitted late yeah. into the movie. It's like, yeah, if you miss those opening credits, you are effed. You're going to come in there and be like, what is going on? What what happened to the other people? Why does she have a shaved head? I don't understand. <laughs> Why does everybody have a shaved head? <laughs> and at that point that you're talking about with Ripley having this emotional moment of the autopsy, I mean, at that point, Ripley hasn't been on screen a whole lot. And my emotional weight is really kind of been shifted over to this Charles Dance character. And there are times in the movie where I'm wondering if he's the protagonist more than she's the protagonist, because so much of this is about him and his backstory, his relationship with this prison warden, and just, you know, you get a lot of Charles Dance in this movie. Charles Dance, best character in the movie. Yeah, and then he dies. Uh. Spoilers. He dies, and now you have the emotional weight a little bit more, but then also you're kind of untethered. It's like, well, what just happened to my 
for all intents and purposes, my main character. Yeah. And in the reassembly cut, it's even worse because he's the first character you, you see on screen, really. And you follow him as he saves Ripley. He's the, the, the prince coming in and saving the damsel in distress in that case. When Charles Dance dies in this movie... I remember this from 92. That was where my mom totally gave up on this movie. When Charles Dance dies, you are totally right. Like it, it, it reminded me even of seeing alien resurrection for the first time with the Michael Wincott character. Yes. It is exactly the same thing here. We have probably the best character in the movie and is killed off rather. I think Wincott was killed off even quicker, but dance at least made it to about, I think like, I think he, I think I checked it when I was watching earlier and he croaks it about like at the 50 minute point or something like that. And I'm, and, and for the rest of that time, I am kind of like just sort of waiting for it to end because <laughs> I like Charles Dance and Ripley together. I like the backstory. They spent so much time giving you this backstory on Charles Dance and then just gone. And then I expect maybe Charles Dutton is going to kind of come in as like take over that. But Dutton is a non-character. I mean, you want to know more about this character, especially the line where he's like, I'm a murderer and rapist of women. And now he's out here. He's trying to make amends. He's trying to be better. And you know that Charles Dutton has, you know, he's been in prison in real life. I don't think it was for the murder and rape of women, but I could be wrong, whatever. But you know that Charles Dutton, the actor, has gravitas. You know that he can pull off roles like this. And he just doesn't have anything he doesn't do anything he's just there just another shaved head guy who looks like he could be interesting but he just swept under the rug he's not and then he has and i'm i know i'm i'm totally jumping ahead with what i'm about to say but even the sacrifice that he makes at the end of the movie makes no sense both of them kind of feel stock to me and that was one of the things like i said about the film where i was like eh it's okay I actually felt that the Charles Dance character of Clemens, actually, as I was watching it, and there's this whole like relationship with her and him and everything, I'm like, oh, this is so kind of standard. I'm like, and then, of course, he dies, and then she's wrought over that, and, and then that kind of gives her a reason to fight and all this. I'm just like, eh. I'm like, it's all really stock. I mean, there's, it's like there's not a lot of... There's not a lot of invention in here, and I think that might be another part of the thing, too, beyond the whole, like, two to three jump, is the whole, you know, it's like, we've seen this before, and we've seen it in cheaper movies. It kind of has that feeling that someone just borrowed a bunch of stuff from other places and kind of nailed it together because it's like, oh, here's the, you know, the the criminal that wants to repent. Here's uh, the doctor she falls in love with, and she's not really supposed to have this kind of relationship because she's the outlander in this whole scene and everything. So, I mean, there's interesting aspects. I just don't think it's, it's as thought out as it, it could have been or should have been. Well, it's funny that you say that Rob, because in doing the research on this film all these years ago, and then kind of re researching it for this episode, I found that there was originally, and this is, Just by the way, filmmakers who might happen to be listening or potential filmmakers, this is a recipe for disaster because I could think of two movies where this has happened on and both of them have been garbage. One of them is Alien 3 and the other one is Indiana Jones 4. You get a producer who comes in or a writer or a writer-producer who comes in and writes you a treatment 
20 pages or so and says, these are all the elements that I want to see in this movie. Here, make it work. And then you hire writer upon writer upon writer. Sometimes even at the same time, you might have multiple writers writing at the same time, doing kind of a bake-off. And then you pick the best one, or you pick the one that's going to be cheapest, or you pick the one that fits with your casting whatever it is. And that's kind of what happened with Alien 3. There was an outline by Hill and Geiler, Walter Hill and David Geiler, who had been involved with the first two Aliens. They wrote and rewrote and did a whole bunch of stuff to the first script, the Dan O'Bannon and Ron Shushet script for Alien. They did the story outline with James Cameron, which I would love to read what that story outline is. And then they did this kind of story outline initially for Alien 3. And then you can see these elements that they must have put into their, their treatment. You can see these coming through in scripts by William Gibson, in a script by Eric Redd, in a script by David Toohey. David Toohey, who's best known to a lot of people for the whole Chronicles of Riddick movies. So you give the this outline to these guys and say, okay, go make it work. And you get these weird, like, echoes as you're reading these scripts and stuff. And there's, like, this, like, anti-Asian thing that's happening in them. There's uh, government intrigue. And there's all this stuff about the whole biomechanical stuff and making aliens into weapons, which we had in Aliens. And that was kind of inside of Alien. But they really take it to the fore in this thing. So we've got, like, I think in Tui's script, there's spores that can kind of infect people. So they, like, they explode and there's aliens underneath them. We've got uh, pigs that are turning into aliens in the, in the um, Eric Red script. Actually, I think the spores are in Gibson's script. I mean, these things all really kind of blend together because they all share these kind of similar elements. It's just kind of scary how similar they are. And there's some good elements. There are some great things. I have to say that Tui's script really worked well. And it seems like they kind of recycled some of that for the fourth Alien film. I don't know what Joss Whedon would say about that, but I wouldn't be surprised if Joss Whedon for the fourth alien was given the exact same thing. And they probably came in and said, we wanted to see it this, that, and the other thing. Cause when you think like three and four are pretty darn similar when it comes to running around in dark halls and different types of aliens and all this kind of stuff. But I'll say, and I know that a lot of people will hate hearing this, that I like four a lot in the series because it seems to be more true to the vision, whereas three just feels so muddled. Three is like it's a to- it's a total Franken movie, just cobble like you said, like with a uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, just cobbled together from all this stuff, and then they made this Franken movie out of it. And with that being said, I mean, looking at it, I don't know how much I would pick up on noticing all this stuff that he hears from the script with the wooden planet and here's with Eric Red's script and a little bit of Walter Hill and stuff like that. I, if I didn't know any of that and watch the movie, I, I, I don't know how much I would have picked up on that because I mean, I didn't know all of that when I watched it in 1992 and as a movie that is like, that is cobbled together from all these different scripts with the same kind of bullet point notes. It is a pretty simplistic movie. I mean, it is like 
crashes onto prison planet, alien escapes onto prison planet, they all have to take care of the alien and destroy the alien. I mean, it's a pretty simple it's a pretty simple movie. It is. But then in watching it when you know all that stuff, it is kind of distracting in watching it. It is blatantly obvious that at one point these this was a monk planet. Um just blatantly obvious. It's it's hardly like they even changed the dialogue except to Every now and then a character like with Charles Dutton says, I'm a murderer and rapist, even though he that is nothing like his character in this movie, in the rest of this movie. Uh, you know, they, they mention like, you know, this is a prison planet. They mention it in exposition in terms of some of the characters and in some of the way that they're describing the planet. But everything else they're talking about, the fact that they've got, you know, these shaved heads, the fact that they're talking about religion left and right, they're calling each other brothers, they're men of God. The only time this feels like it's an actual planet of prisoners is that one scene where Ripley is almost gang raped. And it's the only scene like that that's anywhere close to being like that in the movie, where it's like, okay, this is a planet of prisoners, but it's the only scene like that. Throughout watching this movie today, I'm like, it's, they didn't even try to convert this from it being a monk planet to a prison planet in terms of the scripting for this. Rob, knowing that you're functionally illiterate and you probably didn't do a whole lot of reading for this one. What would you say if I said to you, you know, what Brad has brought up that this movie at one point was supposed to be set on a planet made out of wood? I have no idea where that comes from because to me, it seemed like, like the the only equivalent that I can give to this in a way. And and I know this is going to be odd because it's 20 something odd years in the future is that when I'm watching this thing, I'm seeing aspects of something like Fury Road, the new Mad Max film, where it's some sort of like industrial planet, and then they have this sort of religion or philosophy sort of stamped on top of it. And that was the only thing I got from it. I got, when you said William Gibson, uh, I got certain steampunk elements, uh, you know, the guys with the goggles and all of that stuff. But it just, to me, it seemed more like like I said, it was like an industrial prison or something. That was the only thing that I could kind of come up with is that, yeah, they're in a prison, but they also have to make things and they make things for some company. And that's the only thing I could even kind of like come up with in terms of reasons of why they're there. Well, I've talked a little bit about the Gibson draft. I've talked a little bit about the Eric Red draft, a little bit about the Tui draft. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And those were going on for a while and going nowhere. 
and Rennie Harlan was involved at one point and was just like, no, I can't make this work. And personally, and I have no evidence to this fact, but personally, I think that he was probably being kind of strong-armed by Hill and Geiler because to me, they have their fingerprints all over this. And it just, it, it especially when we talk about the next part of this phase for this thing, it really kind of comes to the fore. But in the middle of this development that they have going on, Harlan steps out and they bring in a new person. They bring in a completely different perspective. And that was Vincent Ward. And he was the one that kind of came up with this wooden planet idea. So Eric Red won't talk to us at all. Like we've tried to interview him several times. He's blocked us on Twitter. He won't answer my emails. Apparently we, he just doesn't like us. <laughs> David Tui won't talk about the past, or at least that's what he says via email. So, I said, okay, let's talk about the next Riddick film. Still no answer. But fortunately, Vincent Ward did talk to us about this film. So we're going to take a break and play an interview with Vincent Ward, the man who provided the original story to Alien 3, or at least the, the version that made it to screen. And we're also going to talk with John Fasano, the writer of that particular draft. How did the film Vigil come about? You know, there'd been a lot of interest in the work I'd done, and so basically, I produced. I had felt that the New Zealand Film Commission would finance eagerly my first feature. I just had to really write it, but it took me quite a while. And the last film, I'd been living in a Maori community for several years, and I started thinking about what it was like growing up on an isolated farm, and the sorts of experiences I had, and the sorts of experiences my sisters had had and I tried to imagine a character an 11 year old girl and what would have happened how she would have seen it when her father was suddenly killed through this lens of this girl who was a kind of very isolated not simple but saw things in almost apocalyptic terms and I started to write a story of her experiences and the film we managed to finance really easily through the film commission because of the interest in the work I'd done to date your really big breakout film, the one that I remember seeing at pretty much every video store that I went to back in the day, was The Navigator, A Medieval Odyssey. How did that movie come about, and why was that the one, do you think, that really kind of broke through for you, for at least American audiences? Virtual had been accepted into competition at Cannes and had won a number of international awards. I started traveling and I wanted to do a story that was more imaginative of what it was, again, also about isolation, but about medieval miners that fear the Black Death. And at least in the dreams of one of their own, a child amongst them, believe that they can burrow through the earth to reach a sort of promised land, a place of escape and refuge. And so the story follows his dreams and they start to believe that they can find find some sort of hope or some sort of place of escape. And so I, I wrote that and, and much to my surprise, we actually got finance for it because it was such an outlandish idea. And I'd somehow we managed, I managed to make the, give the film its own reality so you would buy into the big conceit at the center of it. And I think people, you could take it seriously, but you'd still have a little part of you that would have this wry, that would have the, it'd have this wryness to it, this um, sense of the irony of it. And so people seem to really respond to it. 
in New Zealand, Vigil is the film that people really like, and in America and Australia, it's The Navigator, and in Canada, it's Map of the Human Heart. I don't know why The Navigator seemed to, you know, people seem to respond to it. I think that whole medieval world was very convincing in it, and I think the imaginative leap that is taken in the film of medievals effectively burrowing through the earth, people sort of enjoyed the the leap of imagination, I guess. And I think the kids in it are terrific. The actors are great, and it's a really strong narrative. This is it comes out around what 1988, and somewhere around here you get noticed, at least that is what I'm imagining, you get involved with the Alien 3 project. How did that kind of come about? How did that happen for you? Well, after The Navigator, I had a lot of, you know, I was offered a lot of projects, um, a lot of big studio films. I had a meeting with Spielberg. I had, um, you know, a lot of, I can't remember, there's so many of them that sort of came my way. And I didn't really want to do a, a genre film when I was approached for Alien 3, I kind of turned it down. I sort of said, oh, I'm not really interested. And But they kept coming back to me and saying, look, there's a terrific opportunity. I had an agent then who was um, a Ridley Scott's agent, had a number of other you know, well-known directors, and he just said, you, you're mad, you've got to do it. And I said, well, I hate the story that I've got. So I, I, they, they flew me across to Los Angeles and... On the plane, I had an idea, um, which was what would happen if you went almost in an opposite direction from most science fiction films. And instead of having one button that does a thousand things, you have a thousand people that do one thing. The idea that you have a monastery of monks in outer space who refuse to do things overtly with modern technology. And even though they have modern technology at the hub of their environment so they can control gravity and oxygen. Most of their work is done by using windmills and effectively pre-12th century machinery and physical labor. So everything is hard. They've chosen to live the hard way as much as they possibly can. And that was the concept. When you arrive and you have this concept, how is this kind of accepted? Did they decide to run with this thing right away? Yeah, absolutely. They knew that the script they had was tired and they were looking for something fresh. I mean, what had been wonderful about Alien 1 was, was it, it was that it was so fresh. And what was great about Alien 2 was that it took it in a completely different direction and just allowed for a wonderful and extraordinary world for an audience to enter and get lost in. And it also, once you put an alien at the heart of it, killing off monks, it would be, you know, it was clear that it would be truly terrifying. At this point in the project, did you know if Sigourney Weaver was going to come back or did you have to write it around the possibility that she wouldn't be there? There were two options, really. The studio wanted Sigourney Weaver and Sigourney Weaver didn't want to do another alien. So I wrote... She'd be prepared to do this one, it would seem, but she didn't want to do another one after that. So I wrote two versions of the story, one with her dying and another one with her um, kind of surviving. And uh, she went for the one where she died. I know that John Fasano worked with you on this. What was his relationship with you when you guys were working out the script? I came up with a story before I met John 
registered it at the Guild and so on and was given story credit for it, sole story credit. And then I had two different writers that I was had attached to it to help with the screenplay. I'd give them my notes in detail of how I saw it being done as a screenplay and then they would go off and write. I really liked what you were doing with it as far as the idea of like the alien being the demon, you know, if this was a monk society that it seems like the alien is kind of being the demon that they all are fearing in in their religious practices. Yeah, and of course, a Ridley being a pragmatist and scientific behavioralist knows what that that's not the case at all, but it's almost impossible except for one monk who she befriends to communicate the real nature of this creature. Yeah, I have to say, you know, I've read the early drafts, I've read this one, I've read the ones that came before it, and really, this draft that you guys put together is, you know, so much of what ended up being the final film with the monk colony, with the befriending of the the one character, just so much of this became what we know as Alien 3. Yeah, all of that was in the story that I wrote the befriending of the one monk. All of that was in the original story I wrote. It was only about, I don't know, eight pages or something, but it had all those elements in it. And I liked all the dream imagery that was going on as well and just kind of being able to use that, you know, because other than some of the scares that you get in something like an Aliens, um, where she's imagining that she has the creature inside of her, you don't get a lot of the dream imagery that you guys were utilizing, which kind of precludes some of your later projects. Yeah, well, I've been playing around with Medieval World and the Navigator, and then um, and then I have a sort of hellish world and what dreams may come. So I, I kind of I like evoking those kind of uh, for one of not really gothic worlds, but they're sort of sort of darker and more frightening than the way you would describe gothic normally. Just engulfing worlds that sort of engulf you and terrify you. Now, how long do you think that you were on the project for? I think I was on for about 10 months. You know, I actually ended up at um, Pinewood and starting to go into pre-pre-production with, with a production designer and other people, with a line producer. So we were actively working towards getting the film made. But, you know, we started to run into some hiccups. I I don't know if it's indelicate of me to ask or whatever, but it feels like from everything that I've seen reading about this project, it feels like Walter Hill and David Geiler were really kind of overbearing and controlling when it came to the project. Is that? Do you feel comfortable saying a yes or no about that? You know, I see it as a bit more complicated than that. I, I can't speak for what happened with David Fincher because I wasn't there. I think that what happened was a kind of conjunction of several things. Primarily, Murdoch took over the studio. The you know he bought the studio, he bought Fox, and he needed a tentpole film. And suddenly, we had a release date before we had a, an agreed upon script, or anywhere near an agreed upon script. And then the next thing that happened was, as I think sometimes happens with sequels, people became driven purely by the franchise by their fears and 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 also would the franchise if it was original and, and at all unorthodox would it would it make the money that everybody hoped it would make as the main tentpole film for Fox that year 
And with that then came this raft of orthodoxy and conservatism. And the life of the project was very quickly leached out of it. That's what I started to notice. Everything I loved about the project was rapidly disappearing. The only reason I decided to do it was because of this, I believe one could create this almost prequel, this totally unique world that you would get surprised by and lost in and that one had never seen in a science fiction film before. And suddenly all of that was disappearing and I went, hold on, what's going on here? I felt that they were the um, messengers of death, not death itself. It's a good way of putting it, I suppose. <laughs> I think they themselves were caught up in a, you know, in a, in a kind of crappy situation, and they were struggling. And and I, you know, Walter is a genre, very much a straight genre director. He's not cross genre. It was not a great situation. It became, it devolved into not a great situation. But it was, it was sort of really unfortunate. Were there any silver linings for you when it came to the project? Did this manage to keep doors open for you in Hollywood or help you know get Map of the Human Heart made or anything? Or was this pretty much just a wash for you 10 months down the drain? Oh, I don't think it was an a, wash, a wash because the film, that my idea has this, I think, significant cult following. The film I never made has a significant cult following. So... Since then, there have been you know, a number of significant articles and pieces on, on that project. One by a London Times writer who wrote a book called The Greatest Science Fiction of Films Never Made, and I believe listed that as you know, one of the top, if not the top, film that was never made, even though I got story credit on the final result of Alien 3, much to my surprise. So in the first day that that appeared in that Empire Magazine article, my website crashed because I have on vincentwardfilms.com the gist visually of that whole idea, and it's the only place you can find it. So it appeared in an Empire Magazine article, it appeared in this book, The Greatest Science Fiction Films Never Made, and people recognize that I have a, you know, some sort of ability or gift for create, evoking these worlds. So I went ahead and just made another film, Map of the Human Heart, which was incredibly well-respected, and then eventually went to live in Los Angeles and was fortunate enough to make What Dreams May Come. I don't think Alien 3 led to What Dreams May Come, but it certainly didn't harm it. When it comes to What Dreams May Come, how familiar were you with the Matheson before you kind of came to the project? I had never read the Matheson book Somewhere along the line, I read I Am Legend, which I love. I just love it. Though I don't think a decent adaption of it's ever been done at all. So I think he's a terrific writer. What happened was I was approached by a producer, Steve Simon. He had the script that he'd been trying to get made for 20 years and failed. And he had attached a writer, a very good screenwriter, Ron Bass, and... He said, what do you think? And I, I turned it down. And partly it was also through a conversation and a meeting I had with Ron Bass as well. And then I thought about it. And I thought, you know what? The problem with this story, which I found very moving, is that there's no way to visualize it. Essentially what happens is a guy dies and goes to the afterlife and 
his wife commits suicide and Orpheus like he goes to find her in hell. How do you visualize that? How do you visualize a sort of paradise without it becoming, you know, just all misty white and so on? And I, I had this idea, what if you made this woman a painter and she created these paintings of places, a kind of um, composite of experiences they'd had in her paintings. And also she restored paintings, 19th century paintings, paintings that were really the last vestige of when most people believed in an afterlife uh, in, in a sort of least, a, you know, as a concrete place. And what, ha- what would happen if she, if she restored those paintings and when he died, those, that was the world that he evoked to remember her. That was the afterlife that he created out of his imagination. So it was a subjective or personal afterlife. And that was in keeping with the book because it spoke about when you die, you, you create some sort of subjective afterlife. And then she dies and the afterlife that she imagines or the after death that she imagines in hell is an evocation of her denial, her fears, you know, her, her, the images in her mind of that world. And that's the world he journeys into. It is one of the most beautiful movies that I can remember ever seeing. Just the way that you evoke those paintings, the colors, I mean, everything popping off the screen. How did you work with your um, your crew, your director of photography and everything to capture that brilliance on screen? Look, I had a terrific crew, but the first steps happened long before we shot. The creation of those kind of worlds is conceptualization long before you film. The first challenge I had was I wanted to create a, a visceral, living, painted world in the in this afterlife. I wanted to bring these paintings alive. So when you walked into them, you were slopping through paint, and 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 paint actually moved, and it didn't move in the way that traditional animation evocations of painted worlds move. Um, it had to have its own unique, real inverted commas character. So I went shopping to various visual effects houses, and one visual effect house had some access to some very, very cutting-edge technology. And in fact, we won a, a, an Academy Award for visual effects when the film was completed, and another Academy Award for uh, we were nominated for production design. So we embraced that technology, and I brought together a number of fantastic artists to see it, because at that time, you see, a lot of computer technicians were either geeks, were tended to be more geek-orientated and less art-orientated. That's changed now. But at that time, you seldom, in, a, in, in, in raw cutting-edge technology, you seldom got something that looked visually amazing. And so I tried to find people that could cross that bridge. And we did hundreds of drawings. Um, and... And we assembled these different teams, and some of them were existing teams at some visual effects houses, because we had four visual effects houses on it. And um, and then we brought in a very good production designer whose sets were great and augmented that vision. And that's how we how it evolved. Tight cast when it came to what dreams may come. What was it like working with uh, Robin Williams, Annabella Sciorra, Cuba Gooding Jr., and Max von Sydow? It was funny in the sense that it was each of those actors has such completely distinct styles and 
come from quite different acting traditions. Max von Sydow, you know, you'd say, look, can we improvise this? And he goes, no way. You know, I'm I'm Swedish and I love these words that Ron Bass has written. Don't change a single word. And, I, I, you know, to me, it's whatever the character wants, wants, you know. And so um, so you go, okay, Max. (laughs) And then Anna Balaschiora is somebody that would very reluctantly improv also but it has extraordinary emotional depth. And so she would nail it in one or two takes um, and the performance would not get better because she'd actually gone deep within her kind of psyche to draw up almost, you know, the real internal tickings of a woman that's on right on the edge. Um, and sometimes, you know, she would be on the edge as you would, you know, work with her. So you'd sort of take a step back and create a lot of space around her and just make sure you didn't get in her way. Cuba Gooding Jr. is likes to improv. He doesn't like to prepare much. Unlike Annabella, unlike Max, he's very spontaneous. But you had to be there in case he didn't nail a scene. So when he was on, it was just extraordinary because he's so alive. But if he missed, you had to be there and be prepared to work through and have really know how to nail a scene and and help him um, and a true delight to work with. And and Robin, Robin's Robin, he's a legend. He would do anything you asked. He would, you could talk through a scene as you were directing, as, as the scene was being shot and suggest what's happening to him, almost like a voice coming in through the back of his head and as if it was his own thought. Um, he would be totally open to improv he was incredibly generous with the other actors and um, unstinting with his kindness to the extras. And he would always be there. You'd, I would call him the stealth bomber because you never knew when he was on set. Because, you know, contrary to what people think of Robin, you know, where they see him riffing and talking and, you know, on a run, um, the Robin I knew most of the time didn't say much and he'd just quietly be there observing and taking things in and then sometimes he'd go on one of these wonderful humorous journeys with the extras just to keep them buoyed up on a long night when everybody was cold i do have to admit though what dreams may come might be one of the most heart-wrenching films that i've ever seen and it is a film that i can't watch more than maybe once a decade just because every time it just is a punch to the gut. Well, it's interesting. You know, it's been interesting how it was received. Initially, it had some reviewers that loved it, you know, Siskel and Ebert, the main American reviewers. But, you know, reviewers generally are skeptical of anything that's overtly emotional. And so they were reserved in their response to it. But on websites like Rotten Tomatoes, you see that the audiences have loved that film and it scored incredibly high with just the regular viewers um, and that rating keeps going up and up and up as time goes on. That's exciting to me because I'd set out to make a film that was accessible. You started your career off with a narrative and a documentary and correct me if I'm wrong, was the last movie that you made also a documentary, The Reign yeah, of the Children? Yeah, it was. How was that going back to the documentary after all these years? Well, the last one was a drama documentary, and it was a continuation of the first documentary I made. Um, it was about 
a woman and her life, and this time round, I wanted to tell her whole life as a feature and dramatize large sections of it. And I, I have to tell you a bit about myself. My, I grew up on an isolated farm in New Zealand, but, and my father had always wanted to be a storyteller, and he'd wanted to be a writer. And during the Second World War, um, you know, he lo- kind of was badly injured, and he lost that opportunity, except to tell stories by writing the love letters home of the other soldiers. They would pay him to write their love letters home. And over the years, he continued, he, he became a farmer and, and it wasn't what he ever wanted. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To do, but as he got older, people asked him to tell the stories of the people who just died. So to do the eulogies at the funerals. And he had this gift for telling people stories. He could, in front of an audience that knew those people, could say something about their lives. So they almost got out of the coffin and started walking around those that that isolated country church. And he probably did 50 of these, 50 different people. And his whole life, he finally, right towards the end, found his uh, moment to tell the stories of people, not on paper, but in words. And I, if I, I hope that if I've in- inherited anything, it's something of my father's gift. And that's actually what I aspire towards. And in telling Reign of the Children, I went back, this woman had died some 30 years previously and her son had died that I'd made this documentary about in 1978, 79. And I wanted, I had, it was a mystery surrounding her. Why did she walk like she was doubled over? Why did people say that she was cursed? What had happened to her? And I managed to excavate in her life and find out exactly what her really extraordinary story and that became reign of the children so not only are you a filmmaker but you also have a lot of books to your credit can you tell me about some of the stuff that you've had well there was a book on my work that came out in america that's been quite successful called making the transformational moment in film and that's been largely a book that's available at film schools so that's not one I wrote, but it's one on my work. Um, I do. I like doing books that are um, very visual. That are part of either the last one, the last book that I did was a very large format art book with paintings, composite paintings, photographs that take you into these almost mysterious worlds with naked figures in them underwater in cocoon-like. So that's called Inhale Exhale. It's not on Amazon, but it's available from my website. Um, it's a beautiful book that's 
so heavy it's almost like a deadly weapon, but it's had a terrific response and great reviews. I did another book, which was a film book before that, that was to do with my films. It sold out. It's called The Past Awaits, with stories in and around and behind the films I've made about the people that I worked with. And again, it was well, very well reviewed. Um, and then I did a book a number of years ago. I don't know, I like doing these sort of story, these picture books but that have quite significant stories in and around some of the images in the, in the, in the books themselves. What else have you been up to lately? I am writing a series at the moment, a TV series. I've written another feature film that we're currently at Richard Taylor's doing work for us on. We've just come back from working with Richard, so Richard Taylor from Weta. I've done, I think, 12 exhibitions, some of them large, two of them in China, art exhibitions. When I took over a full cathedral, which had nothing else in it, it'd been, it had rebuilt it and so it was no longer a religious place. But I was there as part of the Shanghai Biennale as New Zealand's first entrant with massive works that were anywhere from 7 to 15 metres in height and with uh, video projections. So I kind of work as a filmmaker and artist and writer. I still I get sent material scripts and which I read and see if there's something I want to make. But I'm moderately I'm quite picky and I really have to believe it's a story I want to you know put three years into. So that's that's really what I'm doing. So where can people go to kind of keep up on your work? People can go to VincentWardFilms.com. I only put a tiny percentage of artwork that I do on there, the most original stuff I like to keep to myself, you know, unless people um, contact me directly. I have to ask about um, your role on Alien 3. I'm strangely fascinated by that film, and I've been trying to learn as much as I can about the behind the scenes of it. Mm Mm-hmm. At what point were you kind of brought in? And, and I know there were so many different scripts that were involved with that one. But you see here, there were so many different scripts while they were trying to figure out who was going to be the director. At one point, Rennie Harlan was the director, and I was working with him. And then he went off to do Ford Fairlane or something like that. And, they, and Walter Hill said, the new craze is bringing in these guys from Australia. There's two guys from New Zealand. There was the guy, George Miller, who had done... Dead Calm. Did he do Dead Calm? And there was this guy that did The Navigator, Vincent Ward. And he said, who would you hire of those? I didn't know he was talking about that. But I just remembered that I read the, the review of The Navigator and thought, this guy made a movie about some monks in New Zealand in the 1400s who go into a cave and come out in New Zealand in 2000, in 1990. And I said, that guy's got a good sense of something. So they hired that guy to direct Alien 3. And he came in and he said, here's my idea. It's a planet made of wood and it's creaking in space and they're all monks. They're all Trappist monks. They've left the earth because books were dying out and they're preserving all the books. If you ever saw his movie, What Dreams May Come, there's a scene in a library where they're floating in these huge stacks of books. That was supposed to be in in the Alien 3. And so they said, we need somebody to get a script out in like two weeks. And so Joe Roth, who was the head of Fox at the time, called me up and said, Johnny, you want to write Alien 3? I was like, okay. So I met with Vincent, and then I realized that it had taken him four years to make The Navigator. And they wanted a script in two weeks from us that they could shoot. And they wanted him to go to England like within a month and start prepping the movie. And he was like, let's talk about it. And they were like, 
no, 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 you got to just shoot this movie. And I would say to him, look, you know, just do what they want and you'll have made a big movie that made money and you'll be able to do whatever you want. And, by the, and then, uh, so I did all these drafts of Alien 3. And then at one point they brought in another guy for one draft who goes and interviews and says he did all the drafts of Alien 3, which isn't true. And then they brought me back again and they told me, you know, you get, get your papers in order, you're going to England. And then one day they just said, oh, you know what, Larry Ferguson, we're going to do the last draft of Larry Ferguson, who was a friend of mine who had written Beverly Hills Cop 3 or something like that, and the Presidio with Mark Harmon and Sean Connery. And I just felt totally distraught. In fact, that could have been the end of my career that day, because I could have just said, oh, fuck this, and gone back to New York you know, to do low-budget horror movies, because I had just done another 48 hours for Walter and worked on Alien for a year, and then they would just replace me without telling me why or anything like that. And then Larry Ferguson, he, they didn't like his script. They got rid of him. And then Walter and David Geiler, who'd written, rewritten the first Alien, came in and they rewrote it. I think they all have, everybody has credit on that movie except me. Because I, I walked out. Because what happened was Vincent Ward got five. Vincent Ward went to England. Now, when you got to understand, when he was over here in America, and they'd say... What's your vision for the movie? And he'd say, it's Hieronymus Bosch. It's men with a goat's head and a dog's body. And they were like, cool, because they'd never heard of that before. And he'd show them these pictures of these that Bosch had drawn. But when he went to England, where Terry Gilliam makes his movies, the guys were like, yeah, Bosch, we just did that for Terry Gilliam in, you know, in the Time Bandits. Like, to them, it was nothing special. And they started calling back to America and saying, this kid's vision isn't special. And the killer... He can't make up his mind. Like, when you're a director, you have to... Somebody says, what color is this wall? And you say, gray. No, blue-gray. No, let's try blue and then see how that looks. They're going to fire you. Because what they need a director to say is, it's gray. 50% gray. You, you know, they, you don't even have to be right. You just have to be decisive. So then they brought in David Fincher. And David Fincher, at this time, I'm the writer of the movie. So I meet with Fincher, and, he, and I hear... He's trying to get Robert Bolt, who wrote Lawrence of Arabia, to do the rewrite. Because you know, it's his first big movie. He wants someone famous to do it. He doesn't want me. He doesn't know who I am. But Robert Bolt wouldn't do it. They brought in Larry Ferguson, who, by the way, had laughed at me when I said I would took the job to write Alien 3. And he was like, that's a crappy idea. Of course, he took the job. Uh, and then they went over and they made the movie. But, you know, if I had, I had an opportunity to finish the draft I was working on for Fincher... And it would have put me in a better position to get credit. But I was so devastated that they had hired all these other people and not told me. I just went like, oh, fuck it, you know, and walked off. So, I mean, it didn't, you know, they, they didn't notice because they already had hired other people. But I would have had a script that I did for Fincher would have helped me in getting credit. But I didn't do that. And, you know, and I luckily, you know, my agent got me a big deal at Sony to do three movies there. So my career could have stopped right there with Alien 3, but it didn't. I'm, I'm remembering your draft as you're talking about it. Didn't you have, at the very end, someone in the audience actually yell out the alien was in the dog? The alien was in the dog? Yeah, because I think the only people that are left are one of the monks and the dog. And he had a little thing that said, like, a teenager in the back row shouts, oh, the, the, it's the in the, the dog. The yeah. aliens in the dog, yeah. <laughs> You know, and also what was really fucked up was that from the beginning of this process, Sigourney said, look, I don't care what you guys do, but at the end of this movie, I have to die. Because I fought this thing three times and beat it three times. 
and I don't want to do another one of these movies. And I said, well, what if it's a huge hit? She goes, well, they'll bring me back as a clone or say it was a dream. I mean, she was very pragmatic. You know, they got our script, and they're like, you killed Sigourney. And I said, well, she wants to die. And they said, no. So I had the priest give her uh, like CPR and suck the alien out of her esophagus into himself, and then he jumps in the fire or whatever. And, but by then, Vincent was gone. And then Fincher comes in, and when I first heard Fincher, I said, well, what's your vision of the movie? He goes, I'm going to kill Sigourney at the end. And they were like, that's a great idea. And I was like, you just fired this other guy for having that idea. And, and by the way, Alien 3 could have been the end of Fincher's career. Right. You know, uh, I remember a moment where the budget was like $45,000, $45 million. And he had just done this Madonna video that cost like $2 million a minute or something. And he said, well, you know, oh, you're only going to get like an hour-long movie for that much money. Like, he, they all laughed, and he went to England and shot the whole movie. They cut it together and came back, and it was like an hour long. And then in L.A., they spent another $25 million and shot enough to make it long enough to be Alien 3. But he told them up front, that's what you get for that much money. You know, that just nobody believed it, you know. Nobody believed it. back. Thanks to Mr. Ward for taking the time to talk to us. Also, very glad to have had the opportunity to talk to Mr. Fasano about his work on Alien 3. We interviewed with him back on our Black Roses episode, and in case you were unaware, Mr. Fasano passed away just about six weeks after our Black Roses episode dropped just about a year ago. We've got Mr. Ward talking to us about the wooden planet, which then, to your point, Brad, really was not too much of a stretch to kind of go back to Tui's draft, which was very much a prison thing, and kind of merge the two together. And around this time, after Mr. Ward leaves the project, that's when we get David Fincher in here. And he's working... I I can't remember which writer he was working with. It was somebody that went completely uncredited on it, who had really not a whole lot of nice things to say about Hill and Geiler, which is another reason why I'm kind of, you know, led to believe this. And then also I know that there were meetings with Hill and Geiler where they were completely dismissive of David Fincher as being the guy who sells shoes because he's coming to us from a commercial and music video background and you know, and you can really see like um, what was that uh, Madonna song? Not Vogue, but the um, video kind of has the same look that we're going to get in, in Alien Three. So if we had Madonna in a suit and a monocle, kind of in the in the mix, it wouldn't have been uh, too much of a stretch. 
But it's also around this time with Fincher and with Ward's draft that we finally get Ripley kind of coming into the film because all the previous drafts to that, they weren't sure if she was going to be back. They weren't sure if they were going to get Sigourney Weaver, which also made for a weird thing because here we were talking about who's the protagonist. They were beefing up all these other roles, not knowing if Ripley was going to be back. So I think that's another reason why it's so confusing as to who we're following. Yeah, Ripley's the most familiar face to us, but she's not necessarily the most prominent character sometimes. The other thing that I think, you know, we were talking about how simple the script is. And I think one of the biggest flaws for me of what that theatrical version was, and we're still talking about the theatrical version, the biggest problem I had with it is that it almost feels like they do the exact same thing twice. Like, hey, we've got an alien. Like, finally they believe Ripley. It only takes about an hour for them to finally believe Ripley that there's an alien here. So we're going to get this alien and contain it. And then within, what, five minutes, Paul McGann, the eighth doctor, lets the alien out. And then they have to do it all the fuck over again. And it's like, what the hell? (laughs) Why did that even happen? I don't understand why they weren't believing her in this movie. (laughs) It takes the alien to burst out of the ceiling grab this guy and yank him up and that's the only time that they fucking yeah, believe her. Yeah, that's all it to which admittedly that scene is very funny. <laughs> it is funny. Yeah. Like like I I on it like I know I've been pretty negative so far, but there is there, there are things I like about this movie. One of them is I did laugh here and there during the movie um, at parts that that really felt like I was supposed to be laughing. That part in particular, and then it cuts to uh, the reaction shot of the prisoner who just simply goes, fuck! (laughs) (laughs) And then then cut to the next scene of some guy mopping up this body while paranoid looking up towards the ceiling like making sure that an alien isn't gonna come down and kill him there's funny stuff like that in this movie but at the same time i think she kind of brings it on herself i mean they at least kind of like allude to it in the beginning because you know when she has the like i said again i don't know who she is the the girl sort of she wants this autopsy for the girl and she keeps going on about oh there's this disease there's this disease so she's not even willing to like level with them it's like she wants to i I think she kind of wants to tiptoe around it before something even happens so it's like it's kind of on her too to go oh yeah uh, we had this thing and uh, i think i may have brought it with me so instead of saying that she's trying to like get them to do things Sort of on a on in a different way. She's trying to get them to investigate, but not investigate that thing. So it's kind of on her too, I think. I totally agree. I was I was thinking the same thing when I was watching it. I was like, what is the harm in telling them that there's possibly an alien on the loose that might try to kill them? That will try to kill them if the alien is actually there. Like I'm watching this. Like, are there in this universe? Are there really that many alien skeptics? Like. This really seems like it would be something you could easily explain to someone. Like, I've just come from outer space, and I've got a few different dead bodies with me. There's an acid hole in the chamber. Bodies are ripped apart left and right. It's it's not that hard. It shouldn't be that hard to convince someone there might be an alien on board this ship that crashed on this planet with me. Well, you know, she did just have to try to explain that all to the people back on the space station and aliens where, you know, they're like, you know. A creature that 
gestates inside a living human host. Yes. These are your words. And has concentrated acid for blood. That's right. Did IQs just drop sharply while I was away? I would take the time and try to explain it again. I would also take the time to get myself checked out way earlier than Ripley gets herself checked out in the film. Because I know I've been there. I'm Ripley. I've been there when Ash in the first movie has the alien pop out of his chest. I can, I understand how these things work. I should probably go in for an x-ray much earlier than I do. Uh, she's got to wait until she thinks she has food poisoning. I'm, I'm really hoping that some crazy alien fan can explain to me just because... I, I know how the alien life cycle works, right? There's egg, there's face hugger, there's baby alien that bursts out of you. That kind of grows up into a full-fledged alien. And then maybe every once in a while there's a queen, so you can kind of propagate the life cycle. I see the egg in the chamber. I've seen the face hugger that was kind of crawling up in these brief opening credits. So I imagine that the face hugger is kind of attaching itself to Hicks in this. And that's where the baby is exploding out of because there's got to be an alien that is, is able to explode out of, out of Hicks, I guess, or somehow gets into that ox and then that explodes out. But does that mean Ripley's also impregnated with this thing. So does that mean that there were two eggs and, or was there a whole life cycle that I didn't see that was on the Sulaco? I don't know. I don't understand it. Well, that whole thing with Ripley having one inside of her, it's like, how long do these things incubate? Because we're led to believe in, at least in the first film, the one I saw, it doesn't take that long, like a day or two. And I get the feeling this has been definitely longer than a day or two. So like to me, timelines are weird. I didn't get the feeling from her discovering she has an alien inside of her in the end of the movie that it's been that long of a period. Maybe maybe just because everything looks the same here. It's all in these dark, long hallways. It's all indoors. Everyone's all wearing the same thing. It It, it is kind of hard to grasp how much time has kind of passed in some of these things. Like, so when I was watching it earlier, I could actually buy that it was maybe less than a day between her discovering that inside of her. And then what happens at the end of the movie, or like you said, it's entirely possible. It could have been even longer than that because everything just kind of looks the same in this movie. I mean, for me, it ha- I figure it's at least a week because it's like she gets saved. She's revived. She starts having the relationship with Clements. They have the autopsy of the girl. I mean, it just seems like it's more than just like two days. It seems a little longer than that. I don't know if this was in the movie or if this is something that I read, but I think that she has been infected with a queen. So I wouldn't be surprised if one of the explanations that you can kind of throw in there is, well, this is a queen and that takes longer to gestate. That is in the film because she says it's a queen because the okay. the alien won't attack her. So that's what she figures out. How she figures that out, I don't know, but that's how she figures it out. Yeah, I guess you got to protect the queen kind of thing. I must kill the queen. And again, I'm not sure exactly how she's getting infected. I mean, sure, she could have had the face hugger on inside of the Sulaco and it would have fallen away and all that kind of stuff. And there's a whole bunch of mess. 
but it just feels like there's one too many alien going on in here, as if it might have been written to the script a little bit later on or something. And then there's this whole idea, too, as far as this thing, whether it's the version that you watched, guys, where it, where it gestated inside of a dog, or there's the version that I watched as well, where it gestated inside of an ox. Where's the fetus going to gestate? You're going to keep it in a box? The alien is different. She says, I've never seen one move this way. And there's this whole idea as to, depending on what creature the alien uh, occupies, gestates in, that it somehow absorbs the characteristics of that alien. And we're going to see that a lot like in uh, Alien vs. Predator, when an alien infects a predator and it comes out and it's got the, you know, the fourfold mouth kind of thing. I don't know if I necessarily buy that. I don't know what kind of what kind of life form would adopt the characteristics of the creature that it's inside of because it seems like you could be inside of a really shitty creature and then come out and just be ridiculous. Like you could gestate inside of a chicken and you'd come out and you'd have a beak or something and like a little beak inside of your mouth that would like shoot out and grab corn. It just doesn't make sense to me. Is that what some of those like storyboards from like when Vincent Ward was working on this were like, where it was like one alien looked kind of like a sheep, but had a human face on its ass. And like one of them looked like a horse. Like, well, that's interesting. Yeah. People have gone crazy with this idea. Like if you have an alien inside of a rhino, then you get one that has like a horn on the top of its head and has super thick skin. If an alien is inside of a T-Rex and it's got little tiny arms, but it's really big or just all this kind of stuff. And it's just like, I don't know how long your race would survive if you adopt the genetic code of the creatures that you're in, because then is crossbreeding allowed or are we okay with that? I mean, it just, it seems like you, you know, the Punnett squares would just be fucking crazy as far as what's a, a major trait and what's a minor trait, you know, what's a recessive. So I don't know. It just seems kind of weird to me. And that seemed to be like in those scripts that I was talking about, they with the lucky land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're all about that stuff. Like the Eric Red script has this scene that actually would have been very effective where it was the main character kind of rides into this military base with a uh, load of hogs. And these hogs are there to be basically put in front of the 
eggs and the face huggers come out and uh, like attack these hogs and impregnate these hogs. And then next thing you know, it becomes this abattoir of aliens bursting out of these pigs all over the place. And that would have been kind of a cool scene, but then the aliens have, you know, poor sign qualities. And I was just like, yeah, that's kind of weird, man. That would have made alien three even better for me. Comes out the ox and he's part ox. Had the horns on it and everything. As the horns. But he already came out of a dog. He could have been part dog and just shit everywhere. Part of the problem is, is that with, like, sequels, we've come to expect that each one, like, the you're going to get more of something. And in here, it just kind of feels like there's just not enough aliens. Like, I was expecting, like, more than just one main creature or two creatures. I was expecting, like, dozen creatures or something. And it just sort of feels also like they just shot lower with a sequel, is what you expect. It's It feels like a total slasher film. It does. Yeah, especially the hallways and the running around and those point of view shots from the alien don't necessarily help that much to me. Some of those just get really kind of cheesy. That was actually something I kind of liked about it. Maybe I don't know. Maybe it's because I, I do dig slasher movies. I don't know. But like... um. If there was one sequence in the movie that I I remember even liking when I was a kid and I kind of enjoyed too when I watched it earlier was this whole sequence of about 20 minutes where they're just kind of going around trying to find the alien and pissing it off and running away from it. One guy one guy throws like a torch at it there then the one guy just yells up at it and curses at it and it's like three times and they're just like running away from this alien. It's like they're a group of children pissing off the neighborhood dog and running back to their house. And I just didn't find that whole, like, running from it even possible, because to me, this creature is able to outrun us. I mean, it's kind of like a cheetah, at least, sort of, in my mind. These guys would have been toast. They would have just been bait to kind of hang out in some place. That would have been about it. And I, I just, I'm not buying it when they're trying to trap it and all that. It's just, what are you, you know... Marathon runners over here? What are you, Carl Lewis all of a sudden? You Olympic runners on this prison planet? Yeah, well, I would have been absolutely fine with that. Had I, like I said earlier, had they only done it once. Because then it becomes, let's do it all again. Within, like, just a few minutes, you know, and that to me is another mark of this weird amalgamation script where it's like, hey, let's do this thing and capture this alien. Paul McGann lets him out. Paul McGann, who I think would have was a very interesting character, you know, kind of crazy. We get him introduced fairly early in here. The two other prisoners talking about how much he smells and how, you know, how unpleasant he is to be around. And then this whole thing where he thinks that the alien is a dragon in earlier drafts, he thought that it was a demon. And so when we kind of had that demon thing going on with the monks, which kind of makes sense as well. And yeah, like he, thinks that the alien is his friend and that kind of would have worked a little bit, but they, I don't think that they really explored that as much as they should have. No, they could, don't they completely cut most of that out in the theatrical cut? Like he's just gone from the movie, like halfway through. And it's hilarious in the making of Paul McGann talks about his accent, that he sounds completely different from one scene to another. I didn't even notice that until he mentioned it. Like, 
when I was watching it, I I didn't even think about that because I was watching is like, okay, well, he's just crazy. He's just seen this guy murdered and has a bunch of blood on him. So he's acting crazy. Yeah. Now it's one of those. Now I can't unsee it or unhear it. It's like, thanks, Paul. Paul McGann, another fantastic actor who just, you know, didn't have a lot to work with. So many of these guys that were in the prison colony were terrific actors, and just some of them just aren't given enough. You know, Pete Postlewaite, one of the best actors that we've had, so fantastic, and just a minimal amount of dialogue that he's got. And it's just like, you know, I feel bad that he doesn't have more to do. And sometimes I wonder if there's too many prisoners because we're not able to get enough. But then, of course, these are just, you know, 90% of them are just, well, more like 99% of them are just dead meats walking around waiting for the alien to kill them. The one guy who (laughs) seems to just purposefully fall right into that fan that's going that's going kind of slow, but chops him up like it was an airplane propeller. I told them not to sharpen the blades on this fan so much. <laughs> wow! I was sitting there like, well, that was that was uh, that was some good gore there. That was a good like exploding person effect they just did. They probably could have turned that fan off a, on a little higher. That would have made it a little more realistic. Or maybe like when you come to clean up the hallway, you turn off the fan, and then you know you got a little sign next to it says, "Please remember to turn on when leaving." You know. I don't know. Safety first. You gotta be safe. I like that he's singing in the year twenty five twenty five by Zager and Evans. So they they got a boombox somewhere on the planet. <laughs> Let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to talk to two of the actors who were involved in Alien Three, Lance Henriksen and Holt McCallany, after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question: Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. If you listen to Proudly Resents, the cult movie podcast, you would know how to properly crush a head. Well, let's say you want to crush a head like Toxic Avenger or the famous full head crushing scene. You take a cantaloupe carve out the inside then you load what we call loading the cantaloupe we used to put in hamburger mixed with cranberry sauce but now because i'm a vegetarian it's only cranberry and spaghetti and things that are not animal then you put a wig on the cantaloupe and paint a little happy face bingo that was lloyd kaufman from trauma films 
To hear more interviews and reviews, go to ProudlyResents.com or find Proudly Resents on iTunes and Stitcher. We are the Popcorn Poops. My name is Dustin. And my name is Jessica. And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet. Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us. However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast. Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com. Again, that's www.popcornpoops.com. Are you as sick of the endless, poorly realized remakes as we are? That's where our show comes in. Every two weeks, we discuss a classic movie actively in development for a remake. We figure out what works and what doesn't, throw a dash of humor at it, and then we craft our own remake. By the end of every episode, we'll have our film gift-wrapped and ready to go for all of those Hollywood suits. We will remake this movie right. Remake This Movie Right can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, your favorite podcast app, or just visit us at RemakeThisMovieRight.com. The next time you're watching a film that you love, just remember... It will be remade someday, and only you can make it better. When it came to being Bishop, especially in the in the first movie, in Aliens, how did you go about preparing for that one? That was that was really something very very. You know what? Before I did Aliens, I felt like I was doing movies, but I was I was only serving the film. What I mean by that is that I, I've studied a lot before I before I did my first film. And I wasn't doing the kind of work that I really know how to do because I, I worked at it. And that, and that is personalizing something and personalizing the people and everything else. With Bishop, I said, if I don't see the kind of work that I'm capable of doing on that screen, I'm going to walk away from acting. I'm not doing it anymore. Because I'm failing myself, so why, why not become a potter full time? Forget it, you know. Forget the acting. And so, one of the things I did was I tried to unravel it and say, "What is? How do you act an artificial person? How do you act an android?" Well, all of the elements in the story were they pointed in a direction where I said, "You know what? When I was twelve, uh, adults had all the power." And I forgave them abuses or, or mis, you know, shortcomings and all of those kind of things because I knew I was going to outlive all of them. And also I knew that forgiveness is a cool thing. I mean, but anyway, that was part of it. So my emotional life was that of a 12 year old through that whole role. And the, and the, another element that would happen was that, that I felt very strongly that anything alive that was really living was absolutely fascinating to me and, and beautiful and incredible. And so those are positive things. I mean, all of the things that I picked out about Fisher were very uh, human. And I didn't realize it. And I stuck with it. No matter what happened, I stuck with it. And, 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 I, and I realized after it came out, that people had seen Bishop as such an innocent and that my message had got across and I saw it. I went, who the hell is that guy? I mean, it, it, by the time I was done, I was, uh, I was kind of amazed by what, 
real thoughts can do on film. It seems like that movie was such a great ensemble piece, but you... Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Did you have to keep yourself apart from the rest of the actors physically as well as emotionally? No, no. I felt, you know, I was, I, I never stopped working on it. I remember being in London and, and getting lost like a child standing on a street corner in London going, I don't know where I am and I don't know where I'm going. You know, I, I got to get back to my apartment, but I, you know, I was lost. And I remember that feeling. And when I saw my friends, it was hilarious. I mean, it was like a reunion every time, every time. <laughs> so it became, I, I mean, I was, I was really happy during that movie. I loved doing it. I loved playing that character. I really did. I remember going to England and Jim had called me and said, do you remember when we were kids, we played uh, with a knife, you know, between the fingers? And I said, sure, Jim, you know, yeah, I used to play that. And, and so he said, well, that's how I'm going to introduce Bishop. You know, I thought of a lot of different ways and he, he told me the other ways and he said, but that's the one. And so I started practicing with all these different knives, knowing him that I didn't know which one he was going to pick. And so I had a whole suitcase full of like throwing knives and switchblades and all of these knives. When I got to London, they opened my suitcase and there they were all laying on top, you know, on a, on a towel. And they told me, like, would you back away from your suitcase, please? You know, and they, they, they had to come down and get me out of uh, coming into the country. So it's all fine. But but I said, I'm look, I'm just an actor. And I think at that time, the IRA was heavily involved in, in London. And so that they, uh, they were taking no chances. <laughs> Poor Bishop. <laughs> It's always amazing to me that Terminator was just two years before Aliens. I mean, such a quantum leap. I mean, I love Terminator, but to see how big Aliens is compared to it is just amazing. Yeah, the, you know, the exponential rise of Jim Cameron's talent. You know, it was there from the beginning, but everything is budgetary. You know, you end up... I did his first movie with him down in Jamaica. Terrible movie, but... And we both want to forget it, but I want you. Well, okay. Yeah. Piranha too. Okay. But anyway, and then the, the jump from that one to showing more of his abilities in Terminator. And, but then when you see the, 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 the jump to, uh, aliens, it was, it was incredible. Every dollar was on that screen. Every single dollar. It's not like he, uh, he knew what he wanted and he knew what he was going to do. 
I, you know, and that kind of talent comes from just a love of making films. I mean, that's, that's it. I, I've never wanted to direct. I have no desire to direct, but I love to conspire. That's different. I want to conspire to do a good movie. But yeah, I've watched it in, uh, in awe. Because really, when I saw Avatar, I thought, oh my God, what a movie. In fact, the funny story was after I saw Aliens, we saw it over at Fox Studios. And, and I was absolutely stunned to the point where when we walked outside, I said, Jim, I, I really don't have any words at this moment. I mean, I, I'm going to write you a letter. And for years, he thought I hated the movie. The truth was I was stunned. I couldn't talk. It was so well done. And so I know how many parts he had, he played in doing it. And he thought for years I hated it. And I said, no, Jim, I'm just too lazy to write a letter. Yeah, you have so many nice moments in that movie. You were talking about the knife, the knife thing. Yeah. When it's done and you thank him. I love that. You, you know what's really funny? originally it was meant to be that I just did it as a demonstration on myself. And right before we shot, I said, Jim, what if I put my hand on, on Bill's hand? Cause he asked me to do it and we do the knife trick and I'm protecting him because my hands over his hand. And that's how that went down. It was so much better, but this is conspiring because Jim's Jim liked it. But the other thing was I went to a, a, a buddy of mine who had been in a circus and he said, I said, I need to do something with that knife. And he, and he showed me how to spin it in the palm of my hand. You know, you grab the throwing knife and you spin it as you open your hand. And then you flip it over and grab the handle. I practiced that forever. I mean, and I finally got it. Because really, it's right next to Bill's head. You know, so I better do it right. So it was cool. It was really cool. It all worked. It was like, you know, God wanted it to happen. And wanted it to work. And I love that other moment when you're looking at the face huggers and there's that, you know, you were talking about the fascination that you had with all living things. And I love that that can be kind of misinterpreted as Bishop is fascinated by the aliens. What's going to happen with that relationship? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, there was, there was other talk of Bishop being able to walk right between, through the aliens, they wouldn't pay any attention to him because he's not alive. He's not a living thing. And I thought that was really sad. But, but anyway, originally, I had spent, I think, my last $1,500 on a pair of sclerals that would cover my whole eye. And I had put two pupils in each eye. And I did it on my own. And when I got to England, I said, Jim, I got, I got something for you. And I said, when it, it, it was actually during that scene, I said, Jim, if uh, Bishop gets alerted to something or is really concentrating, that it goes pop and both. He has four pupils now. And, and, I, and, he, and, I, and he said, it's an interesting idea. And I said, yeah, I have the squirrels. You know, I can do it. And so he said, all right, let's just do a test. So we did that scene and then. And when that guy came in and interrupted me, I looked up at him and I had four pupils in each eye. You know, I mean, two in each eye. So Jim saw the dailies and he said, Lance, that's scarier than the fucking aliens. So we're not using it. I mean, it's shit. Yeah, that does sound really freaky. That's funny shit. I mean, it, 
But it's really true. I mean, it was, it, I, I just, I, I go through a period when I'm acting that I call gathering. I make no decisions, but I gather. I gather impulses and I, you know, and maybe what I'm going to wear or, or an object that's important. You don't tend to do a whole lot of sequels in your career, but you have come back to kind of the bishop role a little bit, yeah. like through other means. Yeah, but they're they're like different manifestations. It's really, it's pretty cool, actually. <laughs> Was it always a given that you were going to be in Alien Three when that came out? No, I don't think so. I think when they write about Bishop, they it's usually like four in the morning, and the writers are sitting around with a block. And they go, well, what if we bring in Bishop in some, you know, manifestation? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, you kind of are a little bit of a deus ex machina at the end there. Yeah. <laughs> I know this is a really dumb question, but I have to ask it anyway, and I apologize in advance. Was Bishop too a human or an artificial person? I think he was an advanced model. Because one of the things that happened was that that Fincher came up with that on the moment. And we didn't even have an ear. You know, he wanted me to be hit in the head and have the flap open up. And but we didn't have an ear. So uh, Jack Nicholson had just finished uh, the Joker and they had a couple of his ears made of polypropylene or whatever it is. And we used one of those. <laughs> So my left ear was big and my right ear was little. It was a little, a little ear. But I thought, yeah, okay, if you're going to continually make an android or an artificial person, that they would advance it to the point where, okay, let's give him red blood instead of milk. So that was my rationale, you know, but I, I, I thought it, I thought Fincher's idea was a good one that you, you leave it, leave people guessing. Your folks were actors. Did you always kind of feel like you were going to be an actor no matter what? Yes, absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, I made the decision to become an actor very, very early in my life, like when I was like six years old. And I say that to people, and they have difficulty uh, believing that sometimes, but it's really the truth. In 1970, uh, when I was seven years old, my father won the Tony Award that year uh, for a, a, a play on Broadway called Borstal Boy by the Irish poet Brendan Behan. And my mother had a show on Broadway that year, too, uh, called Jimmy, uh, about uh, the late uh, mayor of New York, Jimmy Walker. And, you know, I just, you know, uh, used to soak, soak it all up. And it was very clear to me, even at that young age, that, uh, that I was going to be uh, an actor. And then I never really considered anything else. And, you know, of all the things uh, in my life, Mike, that's probably the thing that I'm most grateful for. Because I really think it's such a tremendous advantage for a young person, and maybe not as young as six or seven, but when a young person knows what they want to do with their life, it's a tremendous advantage. One of my, one of my favorite plays is by the late great playwright, Lanford, Lanford Wilson, whom I had an opportunity to work with before his, his death. And he wrote a lot of amazing shows like Burn This and Bomb and Gilead. And he has one called Angels Fall. And uh, in the play Angels Fall, one of the characters is a young tennis player. And he talks about the first moment that he realized he was going to be a tennis player. And he kind of stumbled, you know, uh, onto a court. And there were a couple of guys playing. And he stood there watching them, fascinated, until they took a break. And uh, they kind of left their rackets, you know, uh, by the tennis court. 
And he walked over and he picked up one of the rackets and he started swinging it. And he said, uh, from that moment on, I knew that this was me. This was what I wanted to do. This would have, and you know, once, once you know what you are, then the rest is just work. So I was lucky. I knew from a very early stage in my life what it was I wanted to do. So I didn't have to, I didn't have to wonder. I didn't have to, I was never lost. I was never, you know, adrift. I always had a goal that I was going for it from really the very, very early part of my life. Were you folks really encouraging of this? They were to a degree. I wanted to be a child actor, and my parents were not supportive of that idea. Their notion was, hey, you know, get an education, go to high school, graduate, go to college, and then if you still want this crazy business, then we'll help you. I didn't want to hear that. So, you know, when I was 14 years old, I was having trouble at school. I was a bit of a juvenile delinquent, so I got kicked out of a couple of high schools. And I ran away from home, and I went out to uh, Los Angeles uh, to try to be to try to break into the movie business. And I didn't really know anybody. I didn't know any contacts. So I ended up with a job in a screwdriver factory in Gardena, California, unloading trucks. And uh, one day, my father tracked me down, and you know, showed up at the at the screwdriver factory. And the next thing you know, I was on a, a plane to Ireland. Uh, with the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. To, uh, to boarding school to the same school that he had attended 40 years earlier. So they really, really, they came around slowly, you know, to, to me becoming an actor. But, when I, but by the time I, I, I finally did manage to graduate high school, and, uh, and my mother, who was a very generous lady, who I just lost uh, this year on Easter Sunday, and uh, she fell in love with a lot because she was really a, an extraordinary lady. But she, she allowed me to go to, uh, to college, in France, so I went to theater school over there. I spent a couple of years over there, a couple of very good schools, and then I came back to uh, the United States and began my career. And uh, I never really, I never really looked back, you know. So, so at that point, at that point, they were willing, you know, to help. But I tell you what, you what you discover pretty quickly in the business is that. You know, somebody, whether it's your parents or a family friend or something like that, they can they can get you a meeting. Do you know what I mean? They can kind of open the door. But it very quickly becomes up to you, do you know what I mean, and what you can do. I mean, the famous example that everybody uses is that, you know, Kirk Douglas had four sons, or maybe it was five, I'm not sure. But they all wanted to be actors. But only one of them succeeded, Michael Douglas. And there, there's, there's, there are a lot of examples of that. You know, just because your parents you know, might have been in show business, does not guarantee you a career by any means. And it took a long time, you know. Um, 
My mother was a very beautiful woman. She was Miss Nebraska in the Miss America pageant, and she was a fabulous singer from a very, very, very young age. And so she kind of got snapped up right away. You know, she was in the business only a short time before she was discovered by the great American songwriter Cole Porter and offered a lead and a hit show. And then she was, you know, uh, created the role in London and Kiss Me Kate and and uh, and then, then did the television version and she did films and all of this, like she's still in her 20s. For me, it was a very different journey. You know, I really had to... Uh, to work and to try to improve and continue to, to grow as an actor until the point where finally people started looking and saying, you know what, this guy is, this guy is good. You know, we should give him an opportunity. So it took much longer for me, but you know, how, what can I say? I mean, I don't, uh, I don't, you know, regret that. It would have been nicer if things would have, you know, they become a little bit more easily, but at the same time, when you really have to work for something, you know, um, it's sweeter in a way because you feel like you deserve it. One of your early roles is definitely very memorable. Uh, it creep show two. I still use your "this hair's going to get me paid and laid" line that you used in that one. Yeah. Though I definitely have a lot less hair than I used to. What was that experience like for you? That was a crazy uh, uh, situation. I had auditioned to you know I, I knew the original the, the creep show, you know which which had a kind of a respectable cast. Guys like. And Harris is in it. And, you know, I auditioned for the sequel to play like a frat boy. And then the director and the casting director said to me, uh, would you consider reading for this part of this Navajo Indian? And I said, uh, uh, but I'm like a white Irish guy. How could I be a Navajo Indian? And they said, well, you know, uh, you know, you have good cheekbones and, you know, we can give you makeup and we'll give you a wig and, they said, Burt Lancaster did it, you know, and uh, and he was great, you know. So I was like, you know, when you're young and you've never been in a film before and you're dying to try to break into the movie business, you can get talked into a lot of things that would be harder to talk into now. But anyway, I looked at them and I said, but guys, the producer was in the room at this point, and I said, guys, look, I don't think it can work because I have blue eyes and I'll never forget the producer turned and looked at me and goes, We'll make you a half breed. <laughs> we'll make you a half breed. Okay. And that was uh, sort of my baptism by fire into the uh, into the movie business. But it's funny, you know, it's a terrible movie. And uh, I, I saw it uh, not long ago for the first time in 20 years, and it was it's really did not hold up well. But people still kind of get a kick out of it. And uh, every once in a while, somebody like yourself, thank you, will will bring it up and say, you know, I really like this movie. And uh, so I've come to terms with it. But um, not my most auspicious uh, uh, screen debut. And to be honest with you, it kind of hurt me because for a long time, you know, people saw that they didn't know me and then they saw that performance. And, you know, it, it, let's just say that it did not <laughs> open up a floodgate of offers for me. It took me, uh, it took me a few years to kind of claw my way back from that. How did you get involved with Alien 3? I was a young actor living in New York. And I got a call from uh, a casting director who's still around, a very nice guy named Billy Hopkins. And um, <clears throat> he said that we're going to do uh, another installment in uh, Sigourney Weaver's, you know, Alien series. And uh, that this young director was somebody that was considered like a, a genius that he had started his career, uh, you know, at 17 years old, he was uh, an intern at George Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic and that he was, you know, 
had directed you know videos and commercials, and everybody thought that he was really brilliant. And and of course, he turned out to be very the very brilliant David Fincher. And so I came and read for David, and um, he offered me a part. And at first, believe it or not, I declined because the, in the in the original script, the only scene that my character uh, named Junior. Uh, you know, one of the convicts, one of the space, let's see, we're not space monkeys, we're space monkeys in Fight Club. What were we in Alien, what were we in Alien 3 or something else? You're just like, uh, space monks instead. Right, space monks, there you go. So, uh, you know, he uh, he offered me this part, and when I when I read the full script, the only thing that um, this character really did was rape Sigourney Weaver. And, look, you know... When I play a character, I'm willing to play to play good guys and bad guys. I'm willing to play characters that are very dark, characters that. Uh, but the thing was, it was the only scene that this guy had was you know was was this was this rape scene, you know. When you had to go to England, you had to shave your head bald, and none of that really bothered me. But I thought, God, you know, when they were asking for a five month commitment, I'm like, my God, I'm going to go to England and be bald and be there for five months, and all I'm going to do is this one scene where I rape Sigourney and then I get killed and I don't know. It just didn't seem like it was going to be uh, particularly satisfying as an actor to you know, need this kind of an assignment. And so I declined. And to his total credit, I got a call at home from, uh, from David Fincher. He called me from England. He was already over there. And uh, he said, listen, he said, I know that uh, in the original, in the script that you have, this character only only has this one scene, but you know, I just want you to know that I have um, I have you in mind for a lot of different things in the film, and I'm going to shoot with you a lot, and uh, I think that you're going to have a great experience. So I was very impressed by the fact that he had um, gone to the trouble to make that kind of a call. You know, I wasn't uh, a big star or anything. Needless to say, it was my you know, like my second movie, I think. So um, anywho. I said yes, and I went over. And through his word, uh, David really, uh, you know, David really used me a lot in the film, and I had a lot of very memorable scenes, including an incredible death scene, which did not make the final cut because, sadly, um, the studio stepped in and took the film away from David in post-production and recut it themselves. And uh, any any scene that did not feature Sigourney hit the floor. And uh, frankly, it was uh, a terrible tragedy because uh, David is one of the world's great directors, and uh, if they would have allowed him just to uh, realize his vision of it, it would have been a much better film. Um, you know, I mean, he had the last laugh because he came back and made Seven, which is a phenomenal <laughs> movie. And then, of course, he made Fight Club, which is iconic, and, and since then he has become, you know, one of the most successful directors in Hollywood. But at that moment, that was his first movie, and he was kind of a young upstart. And I think the studio thought it was too dark, and they didn't get it, and they didn't like it, and so they took it away from them. And then, and, uh, and all of my scenes really, you know, hit the floor, except for a few little, you know, pieces. Uh, but the rape scene was still there. So, um, but I don't regret it. You know, um, David hired me again a few years later for another one of his films, and uh, you know, I consider him a friend. You know, uh, and that was kind of like, you know, a first step for me toward you know being in kind of bigger studio fare. That kind of tension that was going on between David and the producers and everything, was that palatable on the set or was that just something that happened kind of more towards the end there when they took the film over? The tensions between David and 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 producers, if I remember our onset producer was a gentleman named Ezra Swerdmo, 
who has gone on to work, although I haven't haven't run into him for a few years, but uh, but I know that he, uh, you know, he remained uh, in the film business and, and and produced a number of a number of films after Alien Three. But he and he and uh, David seemed to have a good working relationship. I think that you know, to be honest with you, the British crew had their feathers ruffled a little bit by David. Um, David, you know, is a perfectionist and, um, and he's very exacting and he has a very specific vision and, um, and he wants people to, uh, to get it. And, you know, while he has a wonderful sense of humor and he's a very kind and intelligent guy, he's also a guy who, you know, if you're not getting it, you know, he can sometimes say things to you that, you know, that are, you know, I mean, he doesn't mince words. You know what I mean? You know, he can be very direct, almost abrupt, and and they didn't like it. So I sensed that the British crew, you know, you know, they make all the this sort of elaborate formality over there. You know, they're fancy for British, they're very posh. You know, so they're not they're not accustomed to that sort of thing. You know? So there was a little bit of um, a little bit of animosity there, uh, if if I recall. I mean, you're asking me to go back. You know, you know, 25 years, but but that that's my recollection. If there was some tension on the set, it was between a kind of a, you know, a very visionary young American director, first time director, and uh, and a, and a, and a British crew that was sort of bridling, you know, under under his you know reins kind of thing. Well, it couldn't have been easy for him either because the production had already kind of started when they brought him in, which must have made it really difficult for everybody involved. I think so, but, 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 you know, you know, you know, looking back, you know, his greatness was apparent to anybody who was really paying attention. Even back then, he was, he's a very smart guy. And when you speak to him, you know, his intelligence and, 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 and his, and his, and his, and his style, it's, and his, and his, Taste. They're, they're all very apparent, you know. You, 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 he inspires a lot of confidence. But you know, the problem is, it was his first movie, so he didn't have a track record. So it was easy for them to kind of, well, well it was harder for them to have that kind of confidence in him. Do you know what I mean? So everybody was a little bit like, you know, and then and then he was a little bit the enfant terrible. Do you know what I mean? You know, he was he was going to have it his way and knew what kind of movie that he wanted to make, and he has very strong ideas about things. And, you know, so, you know, I think that, yeah, there was some tension there, definitely. Uh, you've worked with a lot of directors over the years, and you've been in a lot of things. How does Fincher kind of differ from some of the other folks that you've worked with? Because you've worked with them twice now. I, they all have their own different personalities and their own different styles and stuff. David, he can be funny, and he's very witty. He has a very back sense of humor. He has a lot of charm, um, as opposed to a guy like, say, for example, Michael Mann, you know, who uh, is less, although he has a sense of humor, too, in his own way, but he's less likely to be cracking jokes, you know what I mean? You know, more of a taskmaster, you know, a guy like Walter Hill is uh, uh, a very gentle, almost grandfatherly presence on the set, and yet, if he doesn't get what he wants, then, you know what I mean, then he can be very stern. But, you know, but they all have their kind of, their different personalities. David O. Russell is a brilliant but kind of quirky guy, you know what I mean? Kind of difficult to get a read on sometimes, in my in my experience. You know, I mean, they all, you know, I worked with Kazan, I worked with the Palma, I worked with, I don't know, a, a long list of them, you know, and they just, they're, they're just, they just all have 
kind of different personalities or different styles. Is, and as an actor, you know, the nice thing about the film business as opposed to the television business is that for an actor in the film business, you really have one person that you need to convince, <laughs> you know, when you want to do, you know what I mean? When you want to do something, do you know what I mean? Let's say you want to try something that isn't in the script or you want to modify some dialogue or you have an idea, something you'd like to, you really only have to convince that one guy. And if you can get that director, you know, to buy it, then you're in business. In TV land, the director has very little power. And so then it gets kicked up to the writer and to the producers and to network executives. And we have to call LA and we can, it becomes a, it becomes sort of like, um, you know, uh, directing by committee. And, uh, and I think that that's why a lot of TV isn't very good. Do you know what I mean? Because it's, you know, it's made by a committee. What was your experience like on Fight Club? It was good. You know, it was great to be back working with, uh, with, with David. You know, by that time, he was already established as this tour director who, you know, the Prince of Darkness, they used to call him back in those days. You know, uh, both uh, Edward and uh, Brad, Edward Gordon and Brad Pitt, were very, very hot at the time, needless to say. And um, and uh, Chuck Palahniuk's book was, you know, really popular, and we had an excellent script and an excellent director. And um, and I think it was pretty clear to all of us that we were a part of something really special. You know, sometimes you're fortunate in that respect that you you know while you're making it that you're making... Well, I mean, none of us, I think, really fully appreciated the degree to which the film would become, you know, a cult classic, if I can call it that. I mean, as a just gigantic cult following, Fight Club. I don't think we understood that, but I think that we knew that we were making something very different than what most of the studios were making, needless to say, and, uh, and, and something special. You definitely have one of the most memorable scenes in the film when you're uh, spraying down the priest. That was fun, you know. Like in Alien 3, although I have a little more to do with Fight Club, you know, the mechanic... Sadly, the, my one regret is that if you read uh, the book, if you read Chuck Palahniuk's book, Fight Club, the mechanic, which is my part, is a much more prominent figure in the in the book than he is in the film. He's a, he's, a, he's very much kind of a leader in the book, and and uh, in the film, uh, sadly, he's he's more of a peripheral character. But it's still a film that I'm very very happy that I'm in, and uh, I think it's a great movie. Every actor wants to be in a great movie, and I remain very grateful to David Fincher, you know, for 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 choosing me again. So I look forward to working with him again in the future. I don't know what what it'll be on, but you know, hopefully I'll get an opportunity to collaborate with him, you know, yet again on something. Over the years, you have played a lot of cops, especially on TV, but just even in films, a lot of cops. Why do you think that you are the go-to guy for being detective or cop guy? I think for there are two explanations. One is a simple one, which is that, you know, in Hollywood, anatomy is destiny. So, you know, you know, and, 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 you know, the, 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 that older generation of sort of very rugged looking guys that were leading men, you know, I'm talking about the, you know, the Bob Mitchums, do you know what I mean? And the Burt Lancasters and Kirk Douglases and people like that, you know, the, 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 the style changed and we have a lot sort of kind of much prettier, almost more, I would say, androgynous looking, you know, you know, men, you know, uh, in the lead in many cases, you know, not always, but many of them. So, you know, I'm kind of like 
you know, not a classically handsome actor. I've always been a character actor. There's a tendency, I think, for them, you know, to put me into those roles because they just see me fitting in there and uh, more, uh, you know, uh, easily. And uh, and then the second the part of it is that the cop genre is one of the staples of uh, American film and television. You know, I mean, it's really, particularly in TV, it's kind of the ideal format, right? Because, you know, you, you know, it's a, you're, you're always, there's always a new crime that can be committed, a new, a new, a new, a new, a new, you know, a new criminal, a new killer that has to be caught. So the cop genre is, is a really, really popular genre that's kind of tried and true that the networks have made a lot of money with. So they keep doing them over and over and over again. And that's why you've had four Law and Orders and four CSIs and, you know, and innumerable different versions of innumerable types of cop shows. My problem with the genre at, any, at, at this juncture is that it's very hard to make it fresh anymore, you know? You know, it's like, you know, you, 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 you read these scripts and they just seem like so derivative of so many other things that you've seen before. That what at one time when I was younger was kind of you know kind of one of my favorite genres has has now in recent years it's 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 I'm less enthusiastic about it because it's just done to death. If you had your druthers, what would be your ideal role? What kind of movie would you like to be in, and what kind of character would you like to be playing? I have a wide array of interests. You know, there's so many things that that, that interest me. I mean, look when I when I when I got to play Lights Out, Lights Leary for. Uh, and lights out for FX. That was an example of something that I'd always wanted to do. I, I'd always been a big boxing fan. I wanted to play a boxer, and I wanted to do it while I was still young enough to be a credible, you know, you know, boxer. And then I had the opportunity, you know, uh, to do that, and I had a great experience. The show only lasted one season, but it was a, it was a critical hit. And, you know, it too has uh, a little bit of a cult following now. So, you know... Um, there are, there are different, you know, there, there are different kinds of, uh, you know, and, and, and it all depends, you know, I mean, I, I just made a comment about, about the cop genre. That doesn't mean that somebody can't send me a script tomorrow to play, you know, uh, a police officer that's a completely fresh and inventive and new kind of take on what, on, 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 on what a cop's life is, is like. They could, they could, they could, they could make me really, you know, excited to, to be in it, you know, and the same thing, you know, with a soldier. But I, I guess I would answer your question in this way. Uh, one of my favorite writers was the, the late, great Norman Mailer. And uh, he used to say that there are only two ways that a man can present himself to the American public. He will either be some kind of a warrior or some kind of a lover. Every character you will ever play will be at bottom some variation on one of those two themes. Now, obviously, I'm a guy who has played the warriors in our society much more frequently. But the characters that really interest me the most are the warriors who are capable of love, who have that dimension in them. So where he comes from, what he does, and what walk of life, you know, he, 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 he has chosen is less important to me than that he have that, that, that particular combination of qualities. Those are the characters that I search for. What have been some of your favorite roles over the years, or maybe not even roles, what have been some of your favorite experiences if, as far as being on different films or shows? What are some of the favorites for you? Yeah, well, I mentioned one of them, which was uh, which was Lights Out. You know, that was, uh, 
that was an amazing experience, and I remain very grateful to uh, for it to this day. I, I really had a lot of fun working on a film uh, that I did, uh, a World War II submarine movie called Below. Oh, that was good. That, yeah, a director that I like very much uh, named David Chewy. I had a good experience uh, on uh, on a film that I did with Robert De Niro called Men of Honor because it was a period piece uh, about the Navy uh, and about racism in the Navy in the early 1950s. And, you know, and I got to learn to, uh, to dive, you know, in the old Mark V diving suits. And, you know, and I've, I've since kind of like, ever since those days, I've, I've kind of like continued to, to, uh, to dive as a hobby. And recently um, uh, I had a friendship with the great, uh, with the grandson of the great uh, Cousteau, a guy named Fabian Cousteau. And he invited me to go, to go diving with him. He had this thing called Mission 31, where he took divers down to the bottom of the ocean, and they lived down there for 31 days, the longest period of time that divers have ever remained continuously submerged. And, you know, they're like social, they're, they're, they're ocean scientists and, you know, and activists and marine biologists, and they're, they're brilliant people, and they, they study the, the effects of long-term saturation and and, you know, uh, the effects of, you know, uh, the, the, the degradation of the coral reefs because of pollution and all these different things. But, you know, but, but he invited me to come down and spend a day down there with these, you know, you know, amazing divers down on the bottom of the ocean. That's something that would never have happened, except way back in the 90s, I got a call to be in a movie with Cuba Gooding Jr. and Robert De Niro called Men of Honor. So I said, oh, my God, I'm a diver. I better learn how to dive. I've never been done. So I went to dive school, and I found I loved it. And, you know, and 20 years later, I'm diving with Fabian Cousteau, but I can trace it all the way back to that. So it's things like that. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's that, are, that are unexpected. You know, you know, you play a part, and you learn about a subject that you didn't know about. And you discover a passion in yourself that you didn't know was there. And you carry that with you for the rest of your life. It's like a gift that certain characters give you. What do you get recognized for the most? When people see you on the street, what do they call out? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's funny that you say that. Um, because um, the truth is that it really varies. You know, it's, 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 it's a cumulative effect. You know, for most actors, you know... Um, you know, unless you really kind of make a big splash with one particular TV character or something, you know, it's a cumulative effect. So it's after you've been in the business for many, many years and people have seen you in a lot of things, then they suddenly, it's the cumulative effect of all that you've done that kind of causes them to, 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 to remember you, to, to have that, you know, so, so, I mean, you know, um, sometimes it's from Fight Club, sometimes it's from Lights Out. Some, some, but but it, but it can be for many, many things. You know, I've been doing this for 30 years, and I've been in a lot of different films and a lot of different television shows, and I'm always surprised. People come up to me and say, you know, oh, I saw you in this, you know, little indie movie called The Search for One-Eyed Jimmy. And I was like, oh, my God, you saw that? Nobody saw that. And then they'll, you know, start quoting the lines to me. You know, so it really, it really varies. Well, one thing that I have noticed the past few years is that I think I've reached a little bit of a tipping point in my career because I'm recognized very frequently now. And uh, even as recently as like 10 years ago, it wasn't, it wasn't really like that. I would get recognized occasionally, but now I get recognized like daily. So it's, it's, it's different. And, you know, and, and the more famous you become, I mean, it's, it's a blessing and a curse. You know, uh, 
Um, I remember reading an interview one time with Mel Gibson, you know, and he said, look, I can't stand in hotel lobbies because if I stand in the lobby of a hotel, you know, that's going to become, you know, an autograph signing session, do you know what I mean, within about a couple of minutes. And and I understand, you know, I I have worked with a lot of uh, celebrities. I remember one time I was shooting a movie, uh, uh, you know, down in uh, Arizona and Mexico with George Clooney. We were doing this movie called Three Kings for David O. Russell. And um, it was after after work one night, and a few of us were in a bar uh, in uh, in Arizona, someplace, and uh, people were coming up to, to to get an autograph from from George. And of course, George is very gracious, and he'll sign autographs for anybody. But it was really a lot of people. Like one would come over, excuse me, Mr. Clooney, do, could you mind if I sign an autograph? And then he would sign it. They would go away, and like two seconds later, that would be another person, almost like they were watching to see when the opening was so they could, uh, you know. And after like 40 minutes of this, you know, and he'd sign down, I don't know how many autographs, many. Um, I said, God, George, wow, is this like what it's like all the time? You know, I mean, it must get annoying, no? And he said, Hold. Trust me when I tell you, the easiest thing, the best thing, the only thing to do is just to be very gracious and very polite and sign and say, sure, who is it for? Mary. Okay, here you go, Mary. Thank you so much. Nice meeting you. And then go back to your conversation. Because as soon as you say, listen, I'm very sorry, but I'm trying to have dinner with my friends. I'm not really signing autographs at the moment. Then that person is going to say, oh, but I've been a fan of yours for the last 20 years. I remember you from when, and now you're into a longer interaction than, than you would have been, you know what I mean, with the individual. So, you know, always just be polite, you know, sign and uh, and, and smile. And, you know, and, and I, I, I really took that to heart. And uh, and I and that's how that's how what I do, too. But and I but I'm doing a lot more of it uh, recently than I used to have to do. I have to tell you, I really liked you in The Losers. I thought that was a terrific film, and your role especially. Well, thanks. I was working for uh, Joel Silver, uh, whom I've worked for in the past. You know, he produced a, a film that I had a, a small part in called Bullet to the Head, and I actually had the lead on a series for Joel back in the 90s. Um, I think that uh, they uh, really believed that that could be kind of a franchise deal for them. You know, they had a good cast, Chris Evans, who's become very successful. He's Captain America now. Zoe Saldana, Idris Elba. I mean, they really had like a, like a good, uh, very hot young cast. And um, I think they anticipated that they were going to kind of have the same kind of success that, uh, that, um, that Sylvester Stallone had with his Expendables films. You know what I mean? Which I think he's made three of. Uh, and it didn't really happen. <laughs> you know, um, and uh, I can't really explain to you why. You know, Sylvain White is uh, a very interesting uh, director with a great visual style, a Frenchman. You know, I liked him very much. I already talked about, you know, you know, you know, this 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 great cast of actors based on a popular, you know, uh, graphic novel from France. You know, I I I, I had high hopes for the losers. You know. Um, I get killed in, 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 in the first installment, so I'm not sure my character would have survived, uh, would have been brought back for a sequel. But, uh, but I expected it to do a lot better, too, yeah. You know, but that, that, that's how it is sometimes, Mike. You, know, you, you sign on to these things because you know, Gangster Squad was a very good example of that, a film I did a couple of years ago with Sean Penn and Ryan Gosling and Josh Brolin. You know, uh, good actors, man. And, um, you know, and a, and a great, uh, 
a great eye concept, you know, uh, you know, 1949 Los Angeles and the battle between the mob and, uh, and, 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 and the, and the police, you know, I mean, Mickey Cohen, a famous iconic character, you know, uh, uh, in, in American criminal history and, 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 um, uh, Chief Parker, uh, the, the, uh, who was the, the chief of police in those days, and this epic battle between them, between the, between the Sean Penn and Josh Bowen characters. It should have been great. And, uh, and it wasn't. <laughs> it's not a very good movie, and it didn't do very well. And, uh, you know, and, and, and sometimes that's what happens, buddy. You know, you sign on to these things because it sounds like, oh, man, wow, Sean Penn and Ryan Gosling and Josh Brolin, and we're going to be a gangster movie in 1940. Oh, man, you know, you get all excited. And then the thing comes out and it tanks and you go, oh, well, I guess back to the drawing board. What are you working on these days? I just finished a film a few days ago called Shot Caller, which is by uh, the director Rick Roman Waugh, who uh, you may remember did a wonderful uh, prison film called Felon. And, uh, and more recently, a film that starred uh, Dwayne Johnson called Snitch. And uh, Rick, Rick wrote a very interesting script, which is really an indictment of our penal system and uh, about what convicts have to do in order to survive in that really, you know, you know, brutal, violent world inside our penitentiaries. And so I play a convict. I play the head of the Aryan Brotherhood. And the fabulous Danish actor Nikolai Koster Waldau plays a, uh, a young executive, you know, who... Uh, is incarcerated for vehicular manslaughter because he'd been drinking and driving. And, you know, not a guy with a criminal record, not a guy with any experience, you know, uh, dealing with, you know, you know, you know, prison type, you know, you know, people. And then he gets behind bars and he realizes that in order to adjust to this new reality, in order to survive, that he's going to have to align himself with one of these gangs. So it's really kind of an expose about you know, the culture of white prison gangs in the California penal system and an indictment of our system and, and why so few people are actually rehabilitated. It's a very interesting film. He's a really smart guy, Rick Waugh, and I'm really happy to be a part of that one. I'm also in one that's going to come out uh, in uh, in September called The Perfect Guy, which is a kind of a fatal attraction style thriller. I'm in a, I'm in a big action movie for kids called Monster Trucks, for director Chris Wedge, who did movies like uh, Ice Age and uh, Epic. That's going to come out in the spring of 2016. You know, I did a little indie film called White Space, which was kind of a sci-fi version of uh, Herman Melville's classic Moby Dick. But uh, that one has kind of been languishing in turn. You know, you know, it's it's you know, it's a big, it's a very expensive post-production job, and I, I think the producers ran out of money, so I'm not sure exactly when that's going to come out, but it's a very good film. So I do hope that it will eventually find an audience. And, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, just, just, just living my life. You know, I was asked to be on the jury of the International Film Festival in Brussels in the fall, and so I'm looking forward to that, you know. And, um, you know, uh, I've been reading for some things. You know, I read for uh, part and... Uh, the new Clint Eastwood film uh, opposite Tom Hanks. Tom is going to play that famous pilot, Sullenberger, you know, that landed the plane and saved all those people. You know, just, just going along, you know, not quite sure exactly what's up. They're actually, they're actually talking to me about a, uh, a French language film that would shoot in India with, uh, uh, Joanne Depardieu's daughter, Julie Depardieu. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested in that, you know, because, uh, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier in this conversation, I went to college in France, so I happen to speak fluent French, and 
I've always wanted to make a movie. This one shoots in Paris and in, and in India. And uh, I think that would be interesting. There's some guys out there who seem to be able to work in different countries and, you know, and in different languages. Viggo Mortensen is a good example. And uh, I'd like to do that kind of thing, too. So this would be maybe my first foray. So I think I'm going over to Paris to meet with the director next week. And, um, and that's it, you know. That's, 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 kind of, that's kind of really all I have to report. We're talking about Alien 3. The film was plagued with production problems, including an openly hostile relationship between the film's eventual writer, producers, and director David Fincher. Like I was saying, Fincher comes on, and unfortunately, he's just getting so much shit from Helen Geiler. And they are eventually the ones who write what becomes some of the final drafts of the script. So they have taken, they, they planted these seeds and then they're kind of reaping what they sowed a little bit, trying to jam in that Vincent Ward stuff when they possibly can. And now these guys are both the screenwriters and the producers putting poor David Fincher right there in the middle. First project that he's working on first feature-length film for a major studio and he's got these two a-holes on either side of him just you know picking on him all the time and second guessing him and it just you know between them and the heads at fox it just turns into a nightmare and it's one of those where it's like the rarity that fincher talks about this thing because it was just a bad experience for him is he nowhere like on the dvd at all for it I don't think so. He's definitely not on the audio commentary. It's like every once in a while I can find an interview with Fincher where he's talking about it. But, I, you know, he's still a major player in Hollywood. He's not going to rag on everybody that's involved. He's playing the political game and everything. You know, sure. this episode pretty much guarantees that we'll never have Walter Hill on this show. But what you going to do? I, I'm okay with that. We've we've asked him on the show before. This isn't me getting revenge on Walter Hill for not coming on the show. This is me kind of trying to call him like I see him because, you know, you guys watched the theatrical cut, mm. which was the version that they basically they being the studio and these two guys took away from Fincher, recut. I know they did a shit ton of reshoots. So they're working in England on the majority of the film. And then they start doing reshots out in Los Angeles. And if you watch the making of documentary, which I, I'm pretty sure you said you did, Brad, yeah. you get this whole story of Sigourney Weaver's not going to shave her head again. So we're going to have to make up this crazy 
bald cap that looks like she has a shaved head and just the amount of work that went into this. And then they had to do it again. And it's just like the cost overruns are going crazy. They cut out from the get go. They told Fincher that he had, I think it was like 73 days or something to shoot this thing, which was less than the first or the second one. You know, obviously it's a much smaller film than the second one, but it's even less than the first film. They're cutting the budget like crazy, and they just keep second guessing him. Like this guy's going to go over budget, going to go over time, all this kind of stuff. He ends up delivering his version of the film, I think, three days early, but then they want all these reshoots. So now he's late with it, and just the stuff that he has to go through to get the final version that comes out is just insane. And it, like I said, completely contentious. And one of the things in there that I thought looked pretty cheap, and maybe this is just, you know, the benefit of now 20, like I said, 23, 22, 23 years on, is that like the alien CGI stuff looks really bad. It looks really bad at distance. Like, like, of course, the animatronics and all the up-close stuff is fine, but, like, when it's off in the distance moving, it looks horrible. And, I mean, at the time, did you feel it looked horrible, or did it look pretty cool? I mean, this would have been the time, what, uh, Jurassic Park was almost around this time with that CG stuff? It looked horrible even back then. Uh, it, it totally the same thing. I was having flashbacks of that when watching this again earlier. Like it's It's so weird, because one minute you're watching this, it's like, this is like the death scenes are really good here. Like there's some good gore. There's some good animatronics here. There's uh, the costuming looks cool. There's some really good shots of this alien, great blood splatters and stuff like that. And then every once in a while, there's this horrible looking CGI shot. When it first happened, I was like, am I accidentally watching like um, some pre-release cut of the movie or something like that? Like, why is this, this is continually going like, oh man, that's an amazing effect to that's on par with like the ending of the Langoliers. Like what is with the effects of this movie? <laughs> the flying meatballs. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is crazy because you know, but now going out and watching any other David Fincher film, like I just watched the little thing on uh, Zodiac and there are, hundreds of special effect shots in there that I would never even imagine are special effect shots. Fake blood, the way that the the overhead camera goes down to the taxi cab, just all of these amazing things. I mean, the guy worked at ILM for years and everything, so he knows special effects. And yeah, this just looks terrible. And what's ki- it, what kills me is that the first alien looked fantastic because they knew to hide it in the shadows. The second, you know, the the aliens and aliens, those looked amazing because I know you work with close-ups or when you work far away, you obfuscate. You do not show them walking around, you know. That would just be like, you know, hey, how's it going? This alien just kind of chugging around and stuff. You hide it, man. You do not have this thing in full view because, yeah, it just looked so nasty through so much of it. Why did that even need to be CGI? He's just heading towards the door. Either put it in shadow or use the dude in the suit. Why did why did this need to be in? No, guys, no. This will work much better if it's a shitty CGI effect. Trust me. 
Exactly. You call up that Nigerian dude, that like seven foot guy that weighs 90 pounds from the first alien film. You put him in the suit and you just let him go. Let him do it, man. He can do his mime stuff and he fucking creepy in that outfit. And yeah, those close ups, like that famous shot of Ripley with the alien coming in with the double set of jaws and everything. That looks fantastic because that's all just, yeah the puppets yeah that looks fantastic in the up close but like the two seconds before it gets up into her face is one of those cgi shots that look ridiculous so it oh, kind of yeah. takes away from it yeah in the span of like 10 seconds there with those two shots it goes from looking like crap to looking like yeah i can see why they use this one shot and all the advertising for the movie it's one of the best shots in the movie where they where she's got her head turned and the aliens all dripping with slime and shit like right in front of the side of her head like that's a really, really creepy and effective shot. And five seconds beforehand is this awful asylum-looking thing. It is totally asylum. <laughs> what killed me, you talked about the advertising for this film, and the advertising is kind of crazy for this one, because you know they were working on this thing way before. You know They had ads and everything. This is a, talk about recipe for failure yet again. This was another film that was being made to hit a release date and it didn't matter what was going on behind the scenes. It was all about that fucking release date. So they had the, the machinations of the publicity going and they were okay. We're going to have this out at a particular time on a, on a certain day at a certain time, this movie's going to hit and that's it. So they had this early teaser trailer, and I am just like bouncing off the walls around here trying to find a copy of this trailer on my original DVD, on the quadrilogy, on any of this stuff. Because the original tagline for this movie, it was that going back to the first alien and using the close-up of the egg, which was you know a tremendous advertising campaign for the first Alien, and it looks like a, the surface of a planet, and then you pull back, and it's this egg, and the egg cracks, and all this kind of stuff, and you've got the voiceover guy, and he's like you know blah 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 blah, and you know here comes Alien Three. Well, in the original teaser, he says this time it's hiding in the most terrifying place of all. And I'm just like, oh, shit, man, we're going to Earth. This is going to be amazing. The alien is going to come down to Earth, and this is going to be great. And that was one of the story ideas for a little bit, but they scrapped it. So now, if you go out and you try to find the, the teaser trailer with that on there, can't find it. I thought I was going fucking crazy. I had to go out and find a book that was all about uh, teaser trailers and all about taglines for movies and find like the teaser uh, poster. And there it says it's hiding in the most terrifying place of all. And I'm just like, okay, so that's another reason I'm walking into this movie in 1992 and I'm thinking, Oh man, we're going to go to earth with this thing. This is going to be fantastic. No, no. The most terrifying place of all is inside of Ripley, apparently. And then what also killed me, sorry, I'm on a rant right now. What <laughs> also killed me, is some of these teaser trailers, they say, The bitch is back. Because that was the big line from Aliens, is when you know Ripley comes out with the you know the big mech costume and the queen is there and she does the you know get away from her you bitch. And so they show the alien and it says the bitch is back and then you watch the movie and you realize that the alien is a male alien and you're like well 
Does that mean that the bitch is Ripley? <laughs> this doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> I've seen that teaser trailer for where it shows Earth. Um, that is that really hard to find now? Because some years ago, I saw that teaser on uh, YouTube. I, the one that has that line, it's in the most terrifying place of all, cannot find that anywhere. Like it, It's like the audio cuts out right after they show Sigourney Weaver's name, and there's no more voiceover. So it's got like another 20 seconds of sound effect, but no audio. So I have looked high and low for this thing on YouTube, on fan sites, all this stuff. So like I said, for a little bit there, I know I'm crazy, but for a little bit, I felt like I was even more crazy because I was just like, I remember this. Why do I remember this? And nobody seems to know this. And finally was vindicated by that book. But yeah, I still can't find the actual proof of it. And I would love to just be able to drop that sound clip in right here, but it's not going to happen. I swear I've seen one also. Maybe it's the one I'm thinking of, like where, yeah, total teaser trailer. It's showing Earth. And then the one that I'm thinking of, I thought I remembered it saying. Um, In 1992, we will discover on Earth, everyone can hear you scream. Yes, that one is out there. Okay, then that's the one I'm thinking of. Which, again, leads you to think that it's Earth. I remember the bitch's back one because I was 13, 14 when this came out, and I was like, whoa. I'm like, you know, because you remember little things like that. But I had no clue as to what that reference was because I had never seen Alien 2. So I just remember that line in the teaser trailer. I've never seen it. <laughs> so watching it, having not seen Alien 2, you're like, uh, is Elton John in the movie? <laughs> One of the nice things is that when they released that quadrilogy, we kind of got to see more of what David Fincher had in mind when it came to Alien. So they call that thing the the assembly cut. In between there, there was a work print that was on VHS. I had it some years ago. I don't know if I still have it, but it's it's pretty fucking rough. I mean, it, I mean, it's really rough as far as like the sound quality and the picture and everything the assembly cut looks great they did a really good job of bringing it back there's a couple points here and there where the audio isn't as good as it could be but it kind of gives you a little bit more of what fincher was going for it was i think i want to say it's like 145 minutes whereas the cut that came out to theaters was about 115 so in that extra if my math is right, 30 minutes, you get a lot more character development. Amazing, right? <laughs> so you get a lot more of Clemens. You get a lot more of just the side characters. I mean, there's this whole thing, like what Holt McCallany was talking about earlier. You are missing almost his entire character. He's there to rape Ripley, and that's it. So in this reassembly cut, you really get more of that original vision. Now... I have been slagging this movie through the entire episode and every once in a while we will cover films that I actually like and I will just point out all of their faults so people actually think that I dislike the film. I actually like Alien 3, but I will say that I like the assembly cut. I like that director's version of it. I don't love it, but I definitely like it. I like it more than... Alien vs. Predator Requiem. I might like it more than Alien 4, possibly, but I really 
think that they they did him such a disservice by taking the movie and cutting it down to what it was that this version really hits a lot closer to home and it's still muddled with some of those problems we talked about with the script and everything but it's a lot more coherent than the version that we've been talking about for the last hour and a half i like it better than alien 4 i like it better than either of the um alien versus predator movies there's things about this movie that i do like i do like that um even if even my problems with like he killed Charles Dance like fifty minutes into this movie and he's easily probably the best character in this thing. Even with that being said, this is a movie where just people will just die. Like whether it's beloved characters from a previous movie or someone that you're growing to like in this movie, they will kill off whoever the hell they want to in this film. I like a lot of the humor of the movie, like mentioning earlier with dude getting sucked up into the ceiling and then the reaction of that and some of the kind of slapsticky stuff with the alien chasing them. I like that. It's a very, very bleak looking film. I like that. My, Watching this movie, it feels like it feels like watching an Italian knockoff of an alien movie that just happens to have Ellen Ripley in it. There was an Italian knockoff, wasn't there? It was called Alien 2, I think was just the name of it. There's that one, there's Alien 2 on Earth, and then there's also Bruno Mattei's Terminator 2, <laughs> a.k.a. A- a- Shocking Dark, That's that honestly feels a lot like this movie. Um, very grungy-looking, very foggy and dirty and scuzzy-looking. Like it, It's like, oh man, like they are, they are kind of taking it a step down from Aliens. Like, we're just skipping the regular movie, we're just going to make the Italian knockoff, why not? But I don't think it's as fun or as entertaining as the Italian knockoffs. But I appreciate that kind of bleakness, very, very low budget quality of the movie. Despite issues I have, like we mentioned the special effects and we were talking about the alien special effects earlier. But one of the worst ones I thought in the movie was at the end when she falls into the fire. Which they had to shoot twice, man. Yeah. Oh, because in one version... She just falls into her into the fire with her arms out like Christ, just hitting that, for lack of a term, lava or molten metal, I guess is truly what it is, and disintegrating. And then in the other version, the chest burster bursts out and she holds on to it for dear life and then takes that to the grave with her. Why we needed to see that, I guess, to just prove that she had one in her or something and to make us feel vindicated. But man, I I talk about, yeah, bad special effects again right there. You know what it reminds me of? And it's so much better done of someone falling into the fire and even with like sort of kind of cheap looking effects in the same era is Ian McKellen's Richard III because he falls into the fire at the end, if you remember at the end of that film. And it's so much better, you know, than uh, than it's done here. And like I said, the whole thing of her holding on to it, it's just like, I, I think that's one of those jab the audience in the ribs with your elbow just to make sure they get it. I honestly thought you were going to mention Terminator 2. I thought he was too. Um, I, I thought, I totally thought you were going to mention Terminator too. Like, cause not me, I'm too highbrow. That's the problem. <laughs> that was an ending that does this way better than alien three does for me. Alien three 
felt really anticlimactic for a couple different reasons. One, I don't know. There just wasn't a lot of weight to me when she died. It was kind of like just sort of like dot, 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 and then she dies. And then Bishop 2 comes in, and I'm, he's giving her this speech and everything. And I'm like, man, you know, if you were really hell-bent on her getting her like back on board your ship so you can get this alien out of her... Why didn't you just show up and shoot her with a tranquilizer dart, throw her over your shoulder, walk back up onto your ship and leave? You did this convoluted plan where you're trying to talk her into it and shot right. that that failed. Rush her. Just rush her before she gets to that gate. Just you got a whole bunch of guys there. Just there you go. Run up. Yeah. And then poor Charles Dutton sacrifices himself. Like, I'm like, why does Charles Dutton need to be the one to sacrifice herself? Why not let the woman who's been trying to kill herself for the past 30 minutes, let her do it. Yeah, she's asking him, you know, like, hit me over there with a pipe. Do all the, whatever you want to do. Just go ahead and kill me. It it turns into almost like a slapstick skit. Well, the whole thing is, it then becomes, and maybe I missed it somewhere in here, at least in this cut, how do you have another film out of this? Because I'm like, she's dead. Everything's dead. The only the person that left who was there was what? The, the, the crazy guy. And unless he's infected, it's like, you know, where's your sequel? I, I don't understand where it kind of goes from there. Clones. Clones, dude. Yeah, that's lame. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's lame. That's just, that's a cop out. <laughs> no, no, dude, it's not. Not only is she a clone, she can play mean basketball, too. Fuck yeah. <laughs> not even kidding. Have you not seen part four? No. Oh, man. She plays basketball better than Kurt Russell in Escape from L.A. <laughs> she goes one-on-one with Ron Perlman, man. I'm shaking my head over here. I'm sure you can hear it, and the eyes are rolling, too. If anybody wants to know what might have happened, this is kind of like what the Watcher from the Marvel Universe, what if, what if Newt and Hicks survived? There's two things. There's a fan film that's being made right now where we kind of are racing three and four and all the other ones, and we've got Hicks and Newt, especially Newt in it. But for my money, I haven't seen the fan film yet because it hasn't been made. It's just in the the pre-prod stage right now. For my money, the best thing to do is go read the Aliens comic books. And these things, you can find the originals. They're not too difficult to track down where Hicks and Newt survive. Then once Alien 3 came out, they had to re-release them where they've changed the name of Hicks and Newt to Nicks and Hoot. No, I'm just kidding. They had to change the <laughs> names of these characters, but basically the guy looks like Michael Bean and the uh, and the little girl looks like Carrie Head. So, yeah, it's not too hard to figure out that these are supposed to be these characters. So let's take our final break in this episode, and we're going to play an interview with Mark Verheiden, who was the one who provided this alternative to the movie mayhem of Alien 3 with the Dark Horse Comics version of Alien. How did you get started in comics? I always loved comics. I was a collector when I was a kid. Actually, I still have a pile of them around here. I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and so in in Oregon in the 70s when I was growing up, there really wasn't any sort of outlet to figure out how you could, could actually do that, so it seemed a bit like a pipe dream, and but I also always wanted to write movies, 
and I went to I moved to LA in 1983 to to uh, try to break into the film and television business. Of course, right after I moved away, my ex roommate and an old friend of ours started Dark Horse Comics, and they said, uh, "Mark, you're you're a good writer. Would you like to try to write something for us?" And so I wrote a book called The American, which was the first comic book I ever wrote, which they basically bought and printed. About a year after that, Dark Horse got the license for Aliens, and they were looking for a writer for it, and I sort of like insisted I should be that writer because I loved Aliens. So, But that's how I broke in was that um, I sort of knew a lot of people who also wanted to break in, and as they started to break in, I sort of climbed in with them. The American, it looks like that came out in about 87. It looks like by 88, you were already kind of working in movies. I'm seeing your name on a, as a story credit on uh, The Terror Squad. Is that right? You don't have to go too far into that one. When I first moved out here, um, one of the very first things, a friend of mine was, who worked down here was a sound editor, producer he was working for, a super low-budget producer, needed scripts. And long story short, I, I did a draft of this thing, Terror Squad. The movie itself does not resemble that draft. <laughs> Uh, I think the only thing that's left practically is the basic premise and the title, which was mine. Well, I'll take that. So, yeah, I was trying to break in at the time, but into the movie business, but I ended up detouring into comics. I did, you know, like a hundred or so comics, maybe a little more uh, for Dark Horse and quite a few for DC then too. But people responded to the American, people really responded to the Aliens books. And so that led to getting more work, the Predator books. I did a series for Marvel. I did the Time Cop book. Um, and those all sort of dominoed in the movie and television thing. When it comes to Alien and Aliens, I imagine, did you see Alien when you were uh, a young man? I saw it when it came out, absolutely. Yep, and Aliens. Well, I thought Alien was a great horror movie. I always differentiated between the two. I thought Alien was a great horror movie. I thought Aliens was a great action movie with horror in it. But, but you know, they were very different uh, creatures. It sort of dovetails into when I started working on the comics. When I knew Mark Nelson was going to draw the first series and saw his work, which is very brooding and creepy and unsettling, I uh, you know, made a conscious decision that this should be a horror comic, that let's go for the really more for the kind of scary look of it uh, as much as we could. I mean, there was action in the book, but I, I wanted to steer it more to his strengths, which I think were really the creepy elements of, of Alien. And then when Danny Bouvet came on for the second series I did, his stuff was in color and it was very vibrant. Uh, I went much more for an action story, I think, in that second series. And sort of kept that up with Sam Keith, who did the third series. Did you originally have to do kind of an adaptation of the the second film, or did you just kind of pick up where the second film left off? I, I look back on it, and I go, like, how did that actually happen? Because since then, with a bit more experience in different worlds, um, I, I've seen how sort of oppressive it can be to work on a licensed property and how, how the uh, rights holders can be very, very, and rightfully so, but they can be very, very hands-on. Um, with Aliens, the whole thing was we're going to do a, we're going to spin off from the movies. Uh, we weren't going to do an adaptation. We we're just going to spin off. And it was sort of like, what do you guys want to do? And so working with Mike Richardson and Randy Stradley at Dark Horse, we came up with some ideas. I sat down and did an outline and that became the first six issue series. I don't recall more than maybe one or two notes from Fox. I have to caveat that by saying I was not the editor of the book. I don't know if they had more notes, which they weren't telling me, but 
they gave me those notes <laughs> that they said were from Fox. So they were obviously very happy with sort of where the book was going creatively. And then I assume they were happy with how well it was selling and, and keeping the uh, franchise sort of active and that it was, it was doing really well in the marketplace. But, um, yeah, it was a very uh, creatively just a great experience in the sense of um, they really let us, once once I think they knew where we were going and liked what we were doing, they just said, you know, God be with you, go for it. Do you remember what some of that feedback from Fox was when it came to the series? Um, you know, there was a woman there, and I've forgotten her name, who was our direct liaison. I, I may have talked to her once or twice. You mean in terms of notes, I, th- I think it might have been, there was one note about a nudity, possibly, in one thing, I think. And I think there were a couple of thoughts about too violent. But, uh, again, it's been a long time ago. That's sort of what I remember. I, I don't recall any substantive notes, like they shouldn't be on Earth or, you know, don't do this, don't do that. We did have a couple of fairly major things that were given to us when we walked in. And one of the big things that was given to us that we could not do in the first series was use Ripley. So that was... That was right off the bat. You could not use that character because uh, it was some likeness issue, I think. So that was the reason Ripley was not included in those. But that cleared up by the time we got to the third series, and we were able to bring Ripley back into the story. That sort of dictated how that story went. <laughs> where were some of the places that you took Hicks and Newt and, and where you kind of picked up Ripley from? We picked up in the first book, uh, basically, Ripley, I mean, I'm sorry, Newt and Hicks. Obviously, these were done before Alien but we picked those characters up 10 years after the events of Aliens. And so Hicks was a, has been horribly scarred and left sort of a, he's a pariah. People don't want to even touch him because they're afraid he might be infected. And Newt's basically in a, in a mental institution being um, tranquilized just because of the trauma of her situation. And um, from that, I just wanted to do a story about sort of the madness of of the military and of Earth people and this idea of both a, a religious organization that begins to worship the alien creature as a superior animal and also of the military, which is basically picking up on themes that were in Aliens, the movie, the military wanting these things as uh, to weaponize them. Those were sort of the two big plot lines uh, ran pretty much through the series. Which is basically, you know, if I have one thing that goes through a lot of my work, is that we're our own worst enemy. And so in the Alien series, that proved to be quite true. And I also like the idea of playing and, and sort of extrapolating some, somewhat on the androids, the bishop of it all, and, and, and how you would actually, how that would actually impact on sending squads into space. It, it really didn't, when you think about it, it doesn't make too much sense to send real humans into space if you have perfect androids that look, you know, that do everything humans can do, if those are able to go. So I play a little bit with that and the fact that these androids think they're human and don't know that until they're ripped in half and stuff like that. So those are some of the the thematic things we're playing with. You kind of went balls out right from the beginning with taking the aliens back to Earth, which I really appreciated. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, that was a you know that was a decision we made right off the top. Um, that was done with Mike and Randy. It was like, let's bring them to Earth. Um, we wanted Newton Hicks. We couldn't use Ripley. And uh, from there, I think you know it was about inventing the, the the fun science fiction conceits around that. I actually was just rereading it today. I haven't read it in a while, and there's a spooky thing. I actually have a reference to the World Trade Center going up. <laughs> 
in, in the first period. So I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, and and also I think all the, all the there's a, an early sort of point about how television has evolved into 5,000 channels. By the way, this is back when cable was just starting. So the idea that there's all these channels and people are scanning them all the time, looking and people are trying to find a way to grab your eye to hold you more than 15 seconds because that's how they get paid. That turned out to be a pretty good guess too, <laughs> but uh, which was all that it was, just guesses. They were really fun to do. So the publication starts in 1988. When do you start hearing rumblings that there's going to be a third Alien film, and how does that affect the series? Well, I don't recall, actually. I think we finished all three of our of the first books. Basically, back then, I think they were called Book 1, Book 2, and Book 3, but then I think now they have names. We'd finished those before Alien 3 came out. I do remember going to see Alien 3 in the theater and kind of going, whoa, that's sort of... Um, you know, wow. And it's funny, I, I I think, I, you know, look, I think David Fincher is obviously an amazing director. And I, with with time, I'm actually sort of, I kind of like the, the ball that was involved in killing Newton Hicks, essentially in the, before the credits finished rolling in that movie. However, as an entertainment experience, and as I, I just, it, it's so negative and such a downer, that, you know, I think to this day, I haven't seen it again in a while. Aliens was such a fun movie, such an uplifting. They saved Newt, and, and you know, it, it's just great. It's just fun. And then to sort of negate all that by immediately killing them just felt like, wow, that's a slap in the face to, at someone or, a, or an intentional, you know, this isn't your father's aliens, I guess, sort of motif. So I, I was disappointed in that one, I have to say. So I take it there was no talk of maybe bringing you on board and taking a crack at one of the scripts for this, no? I wish. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. I I think Dark Horse may have suggested, but at that point in our careers and at the time, you know, they were all going to do their thing. And you have to remember back then, too, this was, these books came out before, and I want to get the time right, I think it came out before the first Batman movie came out, the, the Tim uh, Tim Burton movie with uh, Michael Keaton, and you know before that comics were still sort of ugly stepchildren. I I can recall when I was starting my my uh, screenwriting career having some meetings where where the knowledge that I had done comics was not helpful. Obviously, how how it has changed. Yeah, no, I'd take meetings and and you could tell tell that the executives who were often you know older fellows and stuff would sour when he's, they said, what's your background? I said, well, did these aliens, comics, have comics? I ran into that some. Yeah, how times have changed, definitely. Yeah, no kidding. Were you still around uh, working on these when they had to go back in and change the name of Newt and Hicks to other names? They told me they were going to do that. I uh, Look, if it keeps them in print and, and everything, I, those guys are all friends of mine. I don't. It's fine with me. I prefer the originals. I think they're true to what the story was. If you're into the Aliens mythology, I, I hope you'd be able to divorce those other movies, three and four and whatever's come after, and be able to say, okay, this, this is one sort of dimension of where the story could have gone if Newton Hicks hadn't died. Those other movies go off in a different direction, and that's sort of... I think you'd be able to figure that out, maybe, but um, I also understand the commercial impulse and, and to, to do that, and so, um, again, it kept them in print. I think if I have an issue is that they colorized the first one, which was never meant to be in color. I don't think it looks very good. That's just me. 
Yeah, that's got to be weird to go back in and add color to something that was drawn with the intent of black and white. Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, his stuff is so detailed, and, and it's the duo shade work that Mark Nelson does and the fine ink work. You know, putting color on it, it just wasn't designed for it. I think whoever did it did as good a job as they could, but it just wasn't designed for it. Again, I understand the commercial reason for that. Um, I'm sort of of a mind that the originals are out there if you want to see them. The original compilations are out there if you want to see them. You can still find them all over the place. So those are the additions I prefer to the newer ones. Have you been keeping up with this whole thing with Neil Blomkamp and his kind of vision of what aliens could be? Yeah, I saw that. I mean, looks cool. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm a fan of his. And so, um, you know, bringing Newton Hicks back. I don't know if I've seen Newton these illustrations. I did see the Hicks one where he's deformed and looks a lot like the Hicks we had in our comic. Great. I Look, I think we're, the world is ready for another great Aliens movie. Like, I don't want to put down Alien 3 or Alien Resurrection. I, they weren't particularly my cup of tea, though. And so it'd be great to see someone sort of reinvigorate the franchise. How much longer after working on Aliens did you stay in the comic business before kind of breaking full-time into just working on the production and the writing work when it came to films and television? I kind of transitioned over three or four years. It's not a secret. I mean, the bottom sort of fell out of comics around 1992. Sales just plummeted across the board. So, but I had already been transitioning. I'd, I'd written, uh, I, I sold the, uh, uh, I got the job to write the screenplay for Time Cop, I think in 1990 or 91. Did a rewrite on The Mask, uh, the Jim Carrey movie that was 91, I think. So I, I was already transitioning out as um, comics were going through a, a sort of a rough patch. Just to give you an example of the rough patch, because it's specific, I think I I ended up hearing that the first would have been six plus four plus four, so the first uh, 14 issues of Aliens, which were the first three series I did, sold somewhere in the neighborhood of two million copies, and maybe they sold more since then. Later on, I was doing... I did a Predator series, too, which also sold in that ballpark. They were selling three or 400000 an issue. And the second Predator series I did was selling 30000 That's the, uh, the drop that happened in just a matter of a couple of years. You know, look, I don't want to pretend I had any great prescience about that. I always wanted to do film and television. I was always trying to break into that. Um, in fact, writing the Predator comic series led to me selling my first feature because I ended up selling The American, which I'd also done for Dark Horse. I ended up selling that to Warner Brothers and wrote that script. Never got made, but it bro- I was able to break into the screenwriting business and sort of um, jumped into what I've always thought I wanted to do, which I've now been doing for a while. It's funny, though, how you've kind of stuck with comics a little bit as far as the writing stuff goes, working with Smallville and Heroes and now working on Constantine. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny how the, the business kind of came back to you almost. Look, it's been great. <laughs> it's it's amazing. Um, it's amazing how it's come around. Twenty years ago, the idea of Avengers movies would just be unimaginable. The idea of these this you know incredible Marvel universe with giant movies coming out and making half a billion dollars a piece uh, that's just imaginable. And so you know, I grew up on the Avengers and the Fantastic Four and the DC universe and. Um, you know, I grew up on all that stuff and, and still like it. And so to see that happen has been been great. But it's also been it's been great just from a creative standpoint because I love that stuff. 
And so I think the love that I have for that's translated into me being able to work on uh, a variety of projects, you know, comic-based or uh, science fiction, like Battlestar Galactica and Falling Skies. I don't know, maybe it's a, a bit of luck and that everything sort of turned like that when I happened to be able to be available to do it. Um, you know, there were a lot of comics writers even 20 years ago that couldn't really break in because of the, the stigma still attached to comics. It was just tough. So anyway, it's, it's, it's wild and woolly times. It's great. I have to tell you, I love, um, well, I love a lot of your work, but I just wanted to especially call out, I love Time Cop. It's probably my favorite Van Damme film. And I really love My Name is Bruce. Oh, well, now now you're talking. No, that's great. I, I'm glad. I, you know, my name is Bruce. Was um, Time Cops obviously is a special affection because that was the first one that got made. But uh, my name is Bruce is a total labor of love. Uh, Bruce and I and and the Dark Horse guys did that for no money, just for fun, and um, and uh, that was that was really fun to do. Um, yeah, I wrote that. I wrote that while I was uh, working on Battlestar. It, the, the funny story is like Battlestar won a Peabody, and we went to New York to go to the Peabody Awards. And a week later, I was on set with Bruce, and he's kicking a handicapped man <laughs> across the street and in this idiotic movie I wrote. And I said, wow, I have quite a diverse career. It's supposed to be funny. He was, he was a mean handicapped man, but uh, it... <laughs> That might be my favorite part of that film, too. <laughs> hey, you're just as sick as I am. Bruce playing against type so much in that. I mean, he's whenever I've seen him, he's always been so generous to his fans. And then when he just plays a dick in that movie, it is so good. You know, I was sort of surprised he agreed to do it. I mean, but he got into it. I mean, you know, he, he pulls his own movies out and makes fun of them. So um, it was he was really on board with that. He's a great guy. Uh, we were, We keep talking about wanting to do something else together again, and that would be fun. He's a busy man, though, so... talking about Alien 3, and we got just one more thing to talk about. The movie, as it stands. Um, maybe in the original version. Maybe it's that assembly cut. Maybe it's the fan edit. Uh, is any of it worthwhile? And also, how does it stack up against the other films in the series? So, gents, I'll tell you right now. I've seen now the first Alien, I've seen the third Alien, and I guess I've seen the fifth one, because I've watched Prometheus. So, but I guess that's... Uh, the zero hour Prometheus, right? Isn't that the prequel? So I am, um, I, I, I will admit my ignorance. I have not watched the entire series and therefore I should probably reserve judgment. I'll just say that I like the first one. The first one being Prometheus? No, the first one being the Ridley Scott film. Well, Ridley Scott did Prometheus too, so. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> You got me. Okay, no. The uh, the, uh, the the one back in the 70s. There we go. All right. People have kind of 
now tried to reassess this film. And like me, a lot of them are like, oh, well, the assembly cut is the way to go. You have to watch this one and forget about the theatrical cut and blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of reassessing of this movie, and I'm not sure if it's sincere or if it's one of those things like, you know, like the hipsterism where I only like the super rare version of this particular film and blah, blah, blah. Like, I only like 2001 with the original score. I don't like the classical music. I mean, you can't get much more hipster than that. So, is <laughs> Alien 3 the theatrical version or the assembly cut or whatever, is it worth a look or is this the same opinion that you had after seeing alien one and two, that it's dog shit or was it more the opinion of, Hey, this is a good slasher film in space. Um, I think it's an okay slasher movie in space. I don't think it's total dog shit. I I don't because I'm, I I don't think this movie is, I, I, I think it's worth watching. I, I, I do. I don't think it's it's one of those that's so bad you just got to freaking avoid this thing. I would suggest to watch the assembly cut instead of the theatrical version. In watching the theatrical version, knowing stuff that's missing is a little distracting. It makes everything feel really, really rushed. And also, things are things just leave the movie. Like dude going crazy in the straight jacket and then suddenly he's not in the film anymore. Um, the ending is a little less rushed and looks a little bit better than it does in the theatrical version. Um, but I don't by any stretch of the imagination think that this is some kind of undiscovered masterpiece or like this is, this is a movie that was misunderstood in 92, but nowadays it's a total gem. Like, no, I don't think that I, 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 I think that as a as a slasher movie in space, the assembly cut is is so much more complete than what you'll see in the theatrical one. But there is good gore here. There are good characters. The death scenes in the movie are are fine when it's not cutting to the CGI of the alien. There's a lot of stuff that works in this. I think it's a good looking film. I think it's grungy. I think it's dark as hell. I think it's gritty. I would rather watch this than four. So I, I, I don't think that it's just a heaping pile of junk that you that you got to avoid at all costs. Like I I'll reserve any kind of heavy criticism like that towards like Alien versus Predator, Alien versus Predator Requiem, which I think are far worse than this. This this at least has like good qualities to it. Well, it was enjoyable for what it was. Like I said, not being one of these people who saw it in context of two, I thought it was serviceable. Um, I think there's cliche elements, like I said, the whole characters that aren't really developed and all that stuff. But like I said, the, the more that you learn about what's missing, um, you know, it's okay. Um, like I said, I won't be in a big rush to watch it again. The only thing that, like I said, I found interesting about it, having just seen Fury Road recently is that it almost kind of feels like at times some sort of like, you know, suburb to the uh, Mad Max world with the whole sort of prison planet and their, you know, faith. So it's it, it's kind of interesting in that way when I watch it. I, I think this 100% feels like more, more like a Riddick film than it does an Alien movie. Like, it looks and feels like a Riddick movie. So honestly, like, um, if you really, really dig the Riddick movies, which I kind of do you will probably find stuff you'll like about this movie. 
you know, I might have given the wrong impression that the assembly cut is hard to find. It's actually easier to find than the original theatrical cut these days. When I was going out and looking for this, like I luckily I still have my theatrical cut on DVD, but when I was looking for this, I think it's available on Amazon streaming, but both versions are available on Amazon streaming. So it's really kind of tougher to find the shorter version than the longer version. Well, the files you sent me, you sent me one that said assembly cut and then one that just said Alien 3. They were exact same files in terms of length, so they were both the assembly cut. I actually had to go to Amazon and pay my $3 to watch the theatrical cut that way because I didn't have the files. So um, I, I was looking at the other file you sent me, and I think that must have been some sort of fan edit or something. There was one that was like three hours long, and then there was... And then there was two that were like, what, 230 or something, 220. And then the um, theatricals just shy of two. So it's like 150 something. So that's the one that I had to buy off the uh, Amazon streaming. Yeah, I think I watched five different versions of Alien 3 in preparation of this particular episode. So I'm kind of Alien 3'd out. Um, so I really am, that's the other reason why I'm hypersensitive to all this stuff as we're talking about this is because I've kind of overdone it on Alien 3 over the last couple of weeks between the theatrical, the assembly, there's a fan edit called the reassembly. There's one called, I think the Q2 or something. There's, there's quite a few different versions out there that, um, three hour one is actually a reassembly, which kind of meshes the theatrical plus the assembly cut together and then has all of the outtakes and the differences. And they even have the uh, a couple things that weren't available in the assembly cut that were available in that work print that I was talking about. So it's very comprehensive, but I have to say that I don't care for the cut that they put together because I actually like the one better that starts with Charles Dance out on the the planet's surface, which is funny too, because this is yet another one of those talking about trailers. This is another one of those movies where you watch the trailer, you get used to the trailer, especially me when I'm working at a movie theater and I'm seeing the trailer, you know, dozens and dozens of times a day and I'm seeing Charles Dance out there and I'm hearing the voiceover, you know, in a world where the sun burns cold, And I see all that stuff, and I see him find Ripley, and I see him running back and all this stuff. None of that's in the movie that I go see. I'm just like, what the hell? (laughs) What's going on here? (laughs) I hate it when that happens. Which is kind of crazy, too, because just that opening that they had to redo the opening was so strange. Because, you know, you guys probably know this already, but by showing Hicks... Like that picture of Hicks that comes up at the beginning, they don't have one of Newt, but they have one of Hicks. Michael Bean insisted on being paid because his likeness was being used. And he says in the documentary about the making of the film that he got more than the first one. I don't know if he means then when he was in Aliens or the first movie that he ever was in kind of thing. So, But he definitely got paid. He got paid to have his picture used there, which is weird because that other opening, they don't show him necessarily. So it's like, why are you doing that? Paying this actor who doesn't want to be in the movie, who's pissed off that his character got killed off, which I completely understand. 
but you know you got to do that so you can not have the ox have the baby i don't even understand some of this stuff so some of those decisions were just so bizarre that you watch the just watch the opening 10 minutes of both of these films side by side and you're going to say why did they have to change that this doesn't make any sense and also uh michael bean saying in the same interview when he says what if i knew david fincher was going to go on to be david fincher i would have been like okay sure you could use my likeness right (laughs) (laughs) just put me in your next film david yeah rob i really have to recommend that you go back and you watch aliens it is one of my favorite movies of all times, and it is just such a departure from either one of these films that it is just amazing and uh, such a terrific cast. I mean, that to me is probably my favorite James Cameron movie. I mean, you can you can keep your avatars and your Titanics and all that kind of horse shit. Just give me Terminator and Aliens. That's all I need. I don't even need Terminator 2. Just give me those two films. And if I had to choose, I would choose Aliens over Terminator because that is the one I go back to. That's the one I quote from all the fucking time. I mean, anytime somebody's having cornbread, I'm dropping a line from the movie right there. guess you don't like the cornbread either. You know what this is, really? I mean, me on the show this week, it's kind of funny. Uh, if you go back and you listen to the Firewalk With Me episode, this is exactly that sort of um, fish out of water that I've put myself in in this way. Because, in, in, And I actually think that it might actually be an instructive way to do this film uh, in this week. Because, yes. you know, um, you know, if you go in cold, I'm basically, I guess, the, your version of it. Like, when I watched Firewalk With Me and I'm like, I kind of know a little bit about Twin Peaks. I guess. Uh, here's what I'm getting. And you guys would just sit there and giggle at me because you're like, oh, there's so much you don't know. So, um, you know, hey, that's cool. Rob, you are the control group. I am. I This is a scientific experiment, and I am the control group. So, um, you know what? More than happy to do it. No, I, I definitely I appreciate that you don't have this history with the franchise because it is fascinating to me to hear your take on this stuff especially like i don't think you've said newt one time but yet every time that brad and i talk we say newt 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 you know we're all about newt and you're like the little girl and that's fascinating to me because you have no history with that character and i don't even think they say well they they might say newt once or twice in alien 3 but if they do i can't even remember the line but she is nobody to you, which is fascinating to me. So I'm so glad that you were able to be kind of our sacrificial lamb on this one. There's only two references to Newt for me. One is from uh, Holy Grail. She turned me into a Newt. I got better. And and then uh, Newt Gingrich. And uh, to be honest, I'll pick uh, being turned into a Newt rather than hanging out with Newt Gingrich. <laughs> Why are these two guys so upset that they killed off Newt Gingrich in Alien 3? That's, that sounds like a good thing. All right, so now it is time to take our final break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. Well, I think Harry would like me to leave. Well, I don't think that's necessary. I think Harry thinks it is. Harry thinks if you call him Harry one more time, he's going to make you eat that cat. Gene Hackman. Is Harry Mosby. Hello, Harry. In Night Moves. Well, come on, take a swing at me, Harry, the way Sam Spade would. He's a private investigator. My daughter, Delhi. Would you believe Delilah? Well, she's gone. How long gone? Two weeks. Go find her. 
making a living. Well, let's say uh, 125 a day in legitimate expenses. From other people's lives. You can get cheaper. Can I get better? You're hired. Making a mess of his own. God, you're really prime, Ellen. You know that? I catch you screwing another guy and you attack my lifestyle! Your lifestyle has nothing to do with it! Night moves. It's a mystery. I'm looking for Deli Grasner. Deli isn't around here anymore. With a suspect. Are also the victims. I want to know what I walked into. Ask your wife. Well, are we going to talk about it? Well, it's your ball run with it. Were the questions. All right, what's it all about, Mosby? Is there still much uh, smuggling going on around here? The dogs have fleas. Where were you when Kennedy got shot? Have too many answers. <laughs> Where every clue is a lie. I've been listening to your ping pong talk long enough. What was in Marv Elman's plane? Drugs? Was it drugs? Night moves. Check. Check. Ah, oh, it's a beauty. It's a game where every player is a pawn. Harry Mosby. Every move is a wrong one. <laughs> and the winner loses everything. I want to know what it's all about. I told you what it's all about. You, what the hell are you all about? You're asking the wrong question. Gene Hackman in Night Moves. That's right. We'll be working on the Night Moves next week when we discuss the Arthur Penn neo-noir film. Before we go, we'd like to thank this week's special guest as well as our guest co-host, Brad Jones. Now, Brad, is it true that you're truly a cinema snob? In real life, no. <laughs> I just play one on the internet. I don't know how many. I, I don't know how many cinema snobs' favorite movies are Caligula and the Toxic Avenger. <laughs> well, I can't think of too many other podcasts that would cover both of those. So, tell us more about Cinema Snob. What do you What do you do over there? I run the cinemasnob.com. I, I play a character called the Cinema Snob, who's kind of this highbrow critic. It just kind of riffs on some like WTF Hollywood movies, old exploitation movies, but from like but from a satirical point of view of this kind of stereotypical cinema snob, like elite movie goer art critic kind of character. But we do a bunch of other stuff over there too. We we go see pre releases for all the new movies that come out and we we shoot the shit about them in the car afterwards and just you know, the group of us we get together. We get together every week and talk movies. But we also do uh, animated series as well. We have an animated series called Lloyd about a private detective cat. We have uh, original movies over there, like a '80s cop thriller we did called Midnight Heat. So, if you don't like one series of things that we do over there, then there's there's plenty there's plenty of others to choose from. What is this whole thing Brad tries? Oh, the food show. I'll tell you exactly what that is. That is, um, I should get a video posted this week, and this particular series only takes about 10 minutes. <laughs> that's, um, that's a show in which I, uh, uh, I taste different things. Like, it's a total vlog series it's like i've got this 30 year old bottle of new coke let's see what that tastes like now or crystal pepsi or foreign pepsis like pepsi cucumber and pepsi mint and stuff like that and also like gimmicky 
foods. Like we did, um, Red Robin has released a Terminator Genesis burger. <laughs> so we did, we, we did that and come to find out Terminators like jalapenos, I guess, cause that's mostly what was on this. So. That's a show we do too, but that's a total show where it's like, um, if we want to take a break from, from some other scripted series, then we do this Brad tries show that totally doesn't take long at all. So I want you to clear up a little rumor here. You know, before we started recording this, we talked about how, you know, we're both rocking the, the thinning hair, let's say the goatee, this kind of stuff. Now, you and I obviously are not the same person, but are you and that guy with glasses, you're not the same person, are you? <laughs> no, I'm I'm not the that guy with the glasses. Okay. <laughs> just making sure. I'm just one of several people on there who has thinning hair and glasses and a goatee. So where can people go to find the cinema snob? Well, you can find me over at uh, the cinemasnob.com and uh my videos are also embedded over on channelawesome.com too, and I do other videos on that site as well. But all of my main stuff is is posted over at thecinemasnob.com. Very cool. Well, thanks again, Brad, for coming on the show. It's been way too long in getting you on here, and we really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Dude, anytime. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me. So what is your favorite alien film? By you, I'm talking to you, audience. What is it? And why? Go over and leave us some feedback over at our website, projection-booth.com. And, you know, if you've learned anything today or if you've got any hate mail for us or any of that kind of stuff, we are craving your feedback. We're actually going to do another ego show. This will be the third one. That's going to be, I want to say, end of August, early September. So you've got a few weeks to get us in your voicemails, send us your MP3s. Send us your emails, those kind of things. I think uh, the best email address to use is theguys at projection-booth.com. Send it on in. But if you've got some other feedback that you want to just leave immediately, go on over to iTunes. Let the world know what you think about the Projection Booth, and it will definitely help us in our quest for world domination.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.